Is it's Friday, June 18th. Ryan Jesperson with you. That is Ayla Brooke and the sound men from their album Desolation Sounds on Fallen Tree Records. A good Friday morning to you. This episode, this edition, this show of Real Talk is presented by the team at Bitcoin Well, our presenting sponsor. You can find them under the sponsors tab on our website. I know a lot of people right now are paying attention to the, I mean, how can you ignore what Bitcoin and what all of crypto has been doing right now? You may have described it over the past month or so as in a nosedive. A lot of people are saying, oh my gosh, what's going on? Others are saying, we were hoping for it to plummet and drop. We never thought we'd have one more chance to get in on the action. If you're trying to make sense of it, which one of your buddies is right and which one of your buddies is out to lunch talking crypto, why not run a few questions by the real live humans at Bitcoin Well. You can find them right at the top of the sponsors page at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. I'm excited for today's show. Coming up in about 10 minutes, Dr. Michael Geist will join us, a Canada Research Chair in Internet Law. He's a law professor at the University of Ottawa, and he's been talking about Bill C-10. He's been writing about it as well, as a matter of fact. You can check out his blog uh, at michaelgeist.ca, Null and Void, the headline, the title of his most recent piece, Speaker of the House of Commons strikes down numerous Bill C-10 amendments. You're going, C-10, wait, which one is that? There was C-50, there was C-10, there's C-6, there's... This is the one where everyone was saying Justin Trudeau and the liberals want to censor your Facebook page or they're going to come after people like us on Real Talk or there are going to be implications for Canadian content creators. And, and what the hell is the federal government doing in the Internet trying to poke its nose into business where it doesn't belong? And other people are saying, no, this is intuitive. This is smart. This is good. We need this. And Dr. Michael Geist will tell us why this legislation has, in my perception, maybe hit a bit of a brick wall. And then we're going to talk about parking. Our Real Talk Roundtable today on parking, and we're bringing in three expert voices in Canada to talk about how civic design, how municipal design around parking actually says a lot about how we view everything else in life. Like, what is the way that we build our cities and how we approach parking? What does that say about how we value certain things or how we understand what kickstarts economies or what attracts people to live in certain places or to raise their families? Or how does how do these things translate into neighborhood renewal or the growth of commerce or maybe the rebound of jurisdictions like downtowns? So that's going to be a great conversation. Brent Totterin is is joining us again. Brent, I, I think when you talk civic planning, when you talk about city planning across the country, Brent's probably, I mean, aside from maybe, and now as soon as I bring her up, I'm, <clears throat> I'm, I'm drawing a blank on her last name. Like, I just feel like such an idiot right now. But Jennifer out of Toronto, she ran for mayor. She was like their chief planner. You know who I'm talking about? Oh, my gosh. So embarrassing. Live. Someone's yelling it while they're watching us yeah, on YouTube right uh, now. But uh, you'll know if you, I could just Google, like, watch this, like watch Jennifer this. <laughs> City Planner, Toronto mayor. Uh, her name is Jennifer Keysmat. And she was uh, course, she's, she's like a uh, she was chief planner of Toronto for, for about five years. Really sharp person. I would say for me as a, as a non planner, as a, as a pleb, as a, as a lay person, <laughs> When you see commentary on urban planning in Canada, you, you either hear from Jennifer Keysmat, I think, or you hear from Brent Totterin. So we're excited to have him on. Ashley Salvador, uh, well-known in Edmonton. She's been big on eliminating parking minimums, and we'll uh, bring Ashley back on the show. Looking forward to that. And then Victoria Horn will join us out of Halifax to take a look at what they're doing 
another national edition of Real Talk. Plus, I want to make sure that we leave some time to visit. We, we had some really special submissions over the past 22 hours or so. We're, we're interviewing a veterinarian yesterday, not just any veterinarian, a pretty, pretty high ranking. The good doctor was he was like president of the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association, wasn't he? At yeah, some point, Dr. Fairless, Dr. Fairless. And he was talking to us about the, the mental health impacts of I had no idea. Statistics are showing that one in four Canadian veterinarians uh, polled, one in four polled, 26%, in fact, <clears throat> said that they had suicidal ideations in the last 12 months. Now, to put that into context, those same polling numbers show that on average, 12% of Canadians have had a suicidal ideation at some point in their life. So that gives you an idea. So we're talking about what what, what is it about uh, veterinary medicine that people find so stressful and i know a lot of you will be saying are you are are you going to take a look at my profession like we have really high rates too i mean you talk about first responders you talk about people in medicine you talk about certain entrepreneurs there are uh certainly professions that have higher rates of, of those managing mental health afflictions vets are one of them well all this talk about vets <clears throat> got hoyles and i going and we're starting to talk about our own dogs and cats. And, 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 yeah, and cats. And, and, and reptiles and birds and fish and, you know, I mean, all kinds of things. I just, about said, I just about said reptiles and snakes. I'm like, oh, boy, the Internet's going to pile on with it. And, uh, and, and uh, we started receiving photo after photo after. And I'm just absolutely loving it. And I'm going, obviously, we got to bring this to the people. So it sounded to me like maybe something that we might need to do on a Friday to kind of revisit some of this and just celebrate, celebrate all the family members in our lives including the feathered and furry ones. I also sign in this morning and, uh, you know, I check my Twitter mentions as you do to see what real talkers are up to. And I see that Tanya has chimed in and you can see her tweet here. She says, with so much heavy chat, and there has been a lot. There has been a lot because we're, we're hitting head on the stories that really matter. So we're talking about residential schools and reconciliation and abuse and mental health, and suicide, and racism, and all of these things that are so important. And also you go, like, I remember when Jesperson used to debate whether or not pineapple belonged on pizza. I mean, that's a bad example. Which it does. I was going to say, there's no debate there. (laughs) So that's a terrible example. Obviously, pineapple belongs on pizza. Another bad example might be raisins. Obviously, raisins are God's gift to shriveled fruits. Right to dehydrated and shriveled fruits. You're giving me that horrible. You're giving me like the disappointed parent look. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm the, really disappointed. In I'm you, the Ryan. kid up at the piano recital that it's very obvious I did not practice, and my parents are now in attendance to realize how poorly I stack up against the other kids. I would say. I mean, when you said when you said that raisins are the are the best dried fruit, I I that's where I take issue. I would take issue. I mean, dates I think are also up there. And have you ever tried a dried mango? Okay, I'm open to it. Yeah, I, I have. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, I guess I haven't really thought through the proclamation. Yeah, I think, I think you might want to. The one thing I think that's really sad about, great, about raisins. <laughs> great, uh, I mean. <laughs> raisins is that they did not become wine. That's the only thing that, that would be regrettable. <laughs> if I was a raisin, I would sort of feel like I could have I I done, done, done so much more. <laughs> I could have done better. So there, there might be that. And, and then, so Tanya, but let's get back to Tanya's tweet, because right. this is what we do. Like, we're you and me, shiny things, and we're just gone. And Tanya's like, I was sort of hoping, actually, that he might read my full tweet. She's like, I know it's like 14 words, right? So it's going to take, 
But here she says, so with, with so much heavy chat, and she's right, she says, let's get Jesperson to bring more of these hard-hitting questions to Real Talk. And she links to a piece in the National Post. Some people's heads are going to explode that we're talking about the Post. I get it. But maybe the National Post now is staying in its lane, right? <laughs> no, no more columns for Rex Murphy. And now we can talk about is it okay or not to wear shoes inside the house? Uh, writes the opinion piece, uh, the, the author of the piece, which I've not even opened, uh, only if you're an abject barbarian. Uh, is it okay to wear shoes in the house? And we get into this. Let's see who wrote this. Tristan Hopper. I love Tristan. Actually, we got to get Tristan back on the show. Okay, I'm not surprised it's him that's written this. Tanya, I'm just literally opening this live. But where are the pants is what I want to know. Well, those are like short little shorts. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, those are sh- short little shorts. <laughs> short those, shorts. Those are such cute little short little shorts, little buddy shorts. Um, <laughs> is it okay to wear shoes in the house? Do you, if I were to visit, wait, no, no, let me ask you what you do personally in your own home. Do you wear shoes in your home? No. So you take the shoes off at the door or outside the door, you're in in the socks. If I were to come over to your home, like let's say that, you know, COVID's over and everything and and you're like, hey, let's do some outside of work socializing and come over for a barbecue. And I come in and I bring a salad and I bring you like a like a nice um, bottle of Pellegrino. And like I'm just being very sensitive and wonderful. I'm being a wonderful house guest, except I walk in in my shoes and and just like it just doesn't even occur to me. I'm making my way through the house. I'm using your washroom, wearing my shoes. Where, Where would your head be at? It's a little icky. And like what I would want is I'd want you to ask. Like I always ask, you know, should I take my shoes off? Would you like me to take my shoes off? That's that to me is like here's where I think uh, I think you just you don't ask if you take your shoes off. Right? So you want to you you're going to want to say like asking if you want to take your shoes off is like is like uh is like asking the, like the server asking in in the restaurant like would you like me to bring you your change? Yeah. You know? That, that's like, you know, your bill's like $14, you give the server 20 and the server's like, would you like me to bring you your change? Don't ask, just bring it. Oh, because they're assuming that, you're, oh, you want me to, that's I one get of the to first keep, things I get we to would, keep when we, when we were training servers back in the day, uh, when we were training servers, we would say, never ask, always bring the change back. Right. And if you want to be a real shyster, like 14 bucks on 20, if you want to roll the dice and be a bit of a shyster, Bring him back a loony and a five. Totally. Right? If you want to do probably the smarter thing, bring him back three toonies. Yeah. Right? And then they'll probably leave you two of them, four bucks. If you leave the one and the five, you run the risk of getting the one, but you may get the five. It just depends on how well you feel that it's resonated at the table, how well your service has been. But don't ask. So I would say, I would say, like, would you like me to take my shoes off? Just take your shoes off. Right. And then if the person says, oh, no, 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 don't worry about it. Those are the ones that I always get kind of questionable. You go visit someone in their beautiful home, like nice, yeah. nice heart. They've got, they've got like some rare, you know, I mean, they, they went out and like they went down to the Brazilian rainforest and picked out which part they wanted to deforest for their own personal pleasure. <laughs> you know, those types of beautiful hardwood floors. <laughs> here's my own. Little, I don't know who you're hanging out with. Here's no, my, I don't want know what that is. Here's my own little pocket of the Brazilian rainforest. <laughs> But please remove your shoes while you walk on it. I'd be curious so, to know. No, no, no. But you can't. I'm not. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You? Oh, I thought that I had made myself very clear. Obviously, shoes off. Okay. Now, if Carrie, if my wife was was here or chiming in, which she may very well do because I think she has the, I think she has the Zoom link. I think she could barge her way into the show at any time. 
she would tell you that actually what drives her nuts about me, like one of the probably the worst things she would say I do around the house is wearing my shoes in the house, but not like I don't come home from work and walk around in my dress shoes for, you know, 45 minutes in the house. But it's like, oh, I forgot something like I'm, I'm that's on, when I wear my shoes in my in yeah, the house. I'm leaving. I'm running out. And I was I left my coffee on the counter or my sunglasses are in there, Yes, you know, or whatever. Um, you know, and, and so then I'll like run into my shoes real quick and I'll even do the theatrics, like kind of like tip, like yeah, kinda, I tiptoe. I'm kind of tiptoeing and the whole time I can just feel like murder daggers, like absolute daggers, you know, from her. And so, but, but sometimes it's like I'm wearing these fancy boots and they got all these laces and it's like, eh, yeah, if they're slip ons, sure they can come off, but I digress. I'm glad that we were agreeing on this one. What I'm thinking we'll do is uh, at some point, um, probably almost immediately, actually, we're kind of, we, we, we crossed a step in our, well, why am I making this public? It doesn't matter. But we, we, we crossed a step yesterday. We crossed a bridge yesterday and you gained access to my Twitter account. I did. Which was very like, I dun, actually, dun, dun. I actually felt quite liberated. <laughs> Hoyles, ha- Hoyles has my password. Um while I'm speaking, would you potentially like to put up a Twitter poll Ooh. for real talkers? Why don't we do this? Shoes sure. on shoes on or off in the house? And why don't we even give uh, Tristan Hopper a bit of a shout out? Because uh, we, you know what? We'll, we'll get him on Real Talk next week. We um, totally should. Tristan's just an absolute, he's hilarious. I mean, he's he's just absolutely messed. Uh, so am I, which is why we get along so well. The, the way that his brain works, um, he's just an absolute beauty and so tristan hopper but we're announcing he's on the show next week we've we've not yet asked him but he'll do it we're gonna get to michael geist in literally one minute let me remind you right now that if you've not yet figured out your plan for father's day it's still it's still not too late i mean you've still got like it i wouldn't push it any further but the friesen brothers in edmonton that new south edmonton store fort saskatchewan and stony plain these are like their crown jewels. They've got these Father's Day barbecue boxes up for grabs. Go visit them on the website first. You can link to it through the Sponsors tab on our website. You order the boxes, you pick them up. They've got everything from like breakfast, their sourdough cinnamon buns, all the way through the day with like snacks and grillable sausages and things like that. And then the produce and the protein, these beautiful steaks for dinner. You are covered. Friesen Brothers has you covered for Father's Day You can learn more again online. And of course, while you're there, pick up BC Cherries. They've proudly got them right now featured at all 16 Alberta stores. Friesen Brothers, Alberta grown, Alberta owned. Also, a big shout out to the teams at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. I had a chance to talk to Mark yesterday, part of that ownership group. I said, how's everything going with the Real Talk partnership? He's like, buddy, are you kidding me? (laughs) He was like, are you kidding me? He goes, but I'm feeling some pressure. I say, what do you mean? He goes, well, people are already coming in saying when the Father's Day cake promo is done, what's next for Real Talkers? I'm like, Real Talkers are coming in asking for the net. He goes, yeah, man. I love you guys. These are the Dairy Queens at Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road. Father's Day cakes at those six locations. If you drop my name or Real Talk, five bucks off. All the way through till Father's Day on Sunday. And again, they're collecting donations for the Stollery Children's Hospital Foundation. Please do consider the Stollery while you're there. So we've been talking about C-10 a little bit. We've had some expert voices on here. We've been trying to understand what it's all about. Is the federal government really trying to censor Canadians? Is this really just a better way of, of getting ahead of these new internet commerce giants and better understanding 
things like privacy and monetization and trademarks and what's really going on. Dr. Michael Geist is like the expert on this type of stuff, a Canada Research Chair in Internet Law, a law professor at the University of Ottawa. We're very grateful to have you here, Doc, and thanks so much for making time for us today. Welcome to Real Talk. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, how have you, how have you been sort of wrapping your mind around C10? Why don't we kind of do a bit of a scene setter here from, from inception to here? How have you described it to, to Jane Doe, so to speak? Right. So, I mean, I must admit, I, I was concerned about it almost from the get-go. But the starting point, I think, for many was that it was viewed as pretty innocuous. It was legislation designed to bring some of the large streaming services, the Netflix and Disney's of the world, into the Canadian system, mandate that they make payments and carry certain Canadian content. You know, I think they already do carry Canadian content, and Netflix has invested more than $2 billion in Canada over the last five years. But if we even if we push that aside, many said, well, it still seems to us a, a decent thing to do as part of a legislative effort. Uh, where things went off the rails, I think, for a lot of people was when the government made a pretty significant change. Previously, they had excluded user-generated content from the scope of the bill, TikTok videos and Instagram posts and things like that. And they removed some of that protection in April. And suddenly, I think that woke a lot of people up, both to the implications of now saying that the CRTC could treat all of that content as a program subject to regulation. And I think it also got them to look a little deeper into the into these rules and and start to learn that everything from podcasts like this one to uh, to workout home workout videos to news sites, all of these things could effectively be captured by the law. And so why does that like to the average person, what might that mean to me or to somebody that's doing a, a, a cocktail blog or, or to somebody like whatever, Michael, what does it mean? And, and how would that you know, how would our situation uh, or the average content creator situation maybe be different than the big broadcast giants that, that might also be impacted? Yeah, I think it plays out in a few ways. And I think part of it is that it's a hard question to answer because this throws in a great deal of uncertainty about what precisely is likely to happen. It grants the CRTC, Canada's broadcast telecom regulator, a huge amount of power, but it doesn't really specify where some of the limits are. So, for example, the government has at times said, listen, there's going to be thresholds. We're not going to quite literally capture every audio or visual audio video service anywhere in the world, which in theory, the legislation suggests is captured so long as there's a Canadian connection. They say, listen, the CRTC will make some limitations here, but they don't specify what those are. There isn't a great deal of confidence in the CRTC more broadly. And so once you start getting into the prospect of a regulator having these powers, one that doesn't have, I think, a lot of confidence of a lot of people, people start getting nervous. And, and I think we ought to recognize that, that even if you are sort of in the more conventional broadcast space, for a lot of other people who are posting on posting things on, say, TikTok or YouTube or Instagram or, or any of these sorts of medium, uh, the, the notion that that kind of speech should be or could be subject to CRTC regulation, I think, is really troubling because this is basic expression. And, you know, we don't ask the regulator for permission to post something on a blog or to write a letter or to send a fax. But somehow this would bring all of that speech under the purview of a, of a broadcast regulator. And I think that alone raises some hard questions. Yeah. Can, and just anecdotally, 
it's been really interesting for us to to sort of speculate on you know coming out of traditional broadcasting myself and and and, and almost twenty years in traditional media, including newspaper. This is an entirely new landscape for us. And in talking to our lawyers and our team and putting this together and determining our coverage and all these types of things, we've been wondering like what rules do apply to us. And to a certain degree, I felt like shackles are off, which is which is pretty neat. And on the other hand, I've kind of thought, well, it's probably only a matter of time until they start coming after shows like this to apply some what they might describe as sort of evening out measures. How well does the federal government do in your assessment in keeping up with new technology, new platforms, new new methods of information sharing. Is the federal government sort of ice age slow or, or are they capable to move at the speed of technology? What have you noted? Well, I, they're, they're definitely not moving at internet speed. I don't think anybody doubts that. And, and you know, there is a, a reasonable argument that suggests, listen, the Broadcast Act hasn't been updated for about 30 years. And so it's long overdue to start entertaining some of those changes. But I think when you also make the case that it sometimes takes decades to make these changes, it's essential to get them right, mm-hmm. because we don't make these changes very frequently. And I think part of the problem here is that it takes some of those old rules around radio and television says, well, we can just kind of slap them on the internet and say that the same kinds of rules are going to apply. And I don't think that's always right. I think there are fundamental differences between someone who has a podcast, let's say, and someone who broadcasts on radio spectrum that is licensed, that carries certain responsibilities as well as certain privileges. And the idea that all the rules should be precisely the same, just because it sounds the same, the content is similar, doesn't, I think, mean that the content, it's, that the regulations themselves should be identical. Michael, can you give us so so there's this uh, the speaker basically declaring, you know, many of these amendments to C-10 null and void. And I think now people are trying to understand exactly what the implications are here. It's it seems like from 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 I'll be honest, I'm, I'm sort of like shin deep in my understanding on this. I'm still in the waiting pool here. But but the general sense I've got, including some of the interviews I've seen with with Minister Stephen Gilbo, where he's 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 almost come across as, as a little bit underinformed and, and, and somewhat embarrassed about this entire thing. Um, is, is that a fair assessment? I mean, where is C-10 at now following the speaker's rulings? Yeah, well, I don't know that uh, Heritage Mr. Gibo is embarrassed, although he ought to be, um, <laughs> about this legislation. Uh, you know, but I think he has been a, by everyone's account, even people within his own party, I think would acknowledge he's been a terrible communicator. And sometimes it feels like he doesn't even understand the some of the basics of his own bill. But what the government went ahead and did over the last couple of weeks is it, it saw much of this debate, saw that it was going to get have a hard time getting this through the House of Commons, much less the Senate, which seems at this stage unlikely, and said, we're going to impose a gag order, uh, something known as time allocation to limit the amount of debate and kind of just rush this through committee and then rush it to the House. And then along the way, that's that's precisely what they did to the point that the committee was actually voting on various amendments to the bill that were not publicly disclosed. There was no debate. There was no opportunity for sub-amendment. There were no experts that you could consult. They quite literally would give the number of the amendment and then ask the MPs how they'd vote. The chair of that committee said, I don't think that we should be doing this. I don't think we can do this because the, the gag order, the time allocation that the House set for us doesn't allow us to uh, to do to add in some of these new amendments, the the MPs went ahead and overruled him anyway. MPs, at least from the the Liberal Party bloc and NDP, and then when it came back to the House, the Speaker of the House ruled, no, that chair got it right. You couldn't or you shouldn't have introduced those amendments. They're null and void. Uh, 
And so where we are right now is that the bill's gone back to where it was effectively before there was this time allocation, before all these additional amendments were added. But there will be an effort, perhaps as soon as today, by the Liberal government to bring them back. Yet, just one last piece to this, even if they do manage to bring it back, there are only a few days left in the House. It's still even if it gets through the House, which it, it well might might well, uh, has to go to the Senate. And we've seen senators say as recently as this morning, hold on a second, we're going to conduct an actual hearing here. We're not prepared just to give this a rubber stamp. So the bill, it seems, may be on life support, especially if there happens to be an election come the fall. Yeah, interesting point to make. Obviously, federal elections change a whole lot of things when it comes to legislation in progress. James says, uh, watching us live on YouTube, says the current C-10 process is broken. The best thing the government can do is scrap it, look at jurisdictions that have done it right and start over. Uh, Michael, have you have you taken a look at another jurisdiction that's done it right? Or do you have a couple of quick points that you'd say, well, this is where I'd like to see this bill go if it goes anywhere? Yeah, well, I think I think he's absolutely right. They really should scrap this and start from the beginning. I, I think in some ways we we look at other jurisdictions and, and we do see things both that, that I think work, but also highlight where we went wrong. You know, a good example is the regulation of user generated content. There is no country in the world that has seen fit to do this. And so even places where there are extensive regulations, Europe is a good example. Uh, they have gone. They don't go nearly as far as what the Canadian rules would seek to do. And they spent much longer sorting through some of these rules, almost a decade before they kind of landed on where they wanted to end up. And they've tried to recognize that, yes, it may be appropriate for regulations for some of the large video streamers, but we don't extend those to thousands or millions of individuals. And so identifying those those differences, I think, is, is sort of one of the places that we ought to start. I'm, I'm embarrassed that I can't remember what the name of the campaign was. But do you remember, Michael, we, we spoke to a couple of big players in Canada's newspapers scene several months ago. I think it was like either they ran ads on, the, on all their front pages one day or they went blank one day. Do you remember that? And they were all I saying do. that, you know, the federal government needs to do more when it comes to Facebook and all these big advertising giants that are sucking all the profits out of advertising. The government needs to do something to to save us, basically. Um, how, how does that initiative or that trend or that call on government fit into this, if at all? Yeah, so it, it doesn't fit in this bill. It's not part of this bill, but it was part of what the heritage minister was talking about when he was like, I, I'm going to, they handed him the digital key, so to speak, in Canada. And yeah. said, you know, I, I'm going to get involved in a whole bunch of issues. The newspaper and the news media sector was one of them. Uh, but there's been pushback there too. You know, I, I think that when you start running blank front pages and actively lobbying, uh, for government intervention. At the same time, when some of your own members, some of the same media members are striking deals with these companies, you lose a lot of credibility along the way. And I think that uh, there's been real harm to the credibility of the media sector uh, when they're arguing basically that links ought to be paid for and that it's the government that needs to step in and intervene in negotiations when around the world, hundreds of media organizations have found ways to strike deals. And in Canada, we've seen more than a dozen do the same. Yeah. And I don't know this. I mean, for me, I obviously journalism is so important. It's in, more important now than ever that people can have trusted, reliable information. That these stories are being told. The governments are being held to account, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, 
I also really lack sympathy, not for some of my former colleagues, not for the people that are writing the pieces and shooting the photos and doing the editorial work. But but when, you know, a company like, you know, Post Media, for example, can accept a whole bunch of government subsidies or get a big boost in funding and then lay off 500 people. And then Paul Godfrey gets a big fat cat ticket, some big bonus, some seven figure bonus. I don't think that anybody's going to feel sorry for these companies, which is really unfortunate because it's the journalists that are getting screwed. But the model's broken. It is. And, and I think that I think there's wide agreement at this stage that we need to find some mechanisms for support. But there are always these risks that, you know, as the as these media organizations become more and more beholden to the government, it compromises their ability to fairly report on some of these issues. And so I think we've got to be careful about some of the steps that we take. I think we also have to ensure that in the rush to try to bring in some of these kinds of new rules that we don't harm the more innovative players. You know, we're starting we, we are seeing many online only digital media services, some focusing on the local environment, some specialized. We, of course, see all these new podcast networks emerge. We're seeing so much taking place, so much excitement and innovation. And I think that for many, there is a sense that some of these larger legacy players are really just trying to preserve their status here and could ultimately impede some of that innovation along the way. Michael, in closing, uh, Deborah is chiming in. She says, hang on a second. I thought the intention of Bill C-10 was so that content creators could be paid for their work. Is there any angle on C-10 where that might be the case? It's an interesting one. I haven't heard it before. No, there isn't. Yeah. This this had nothing to do with being paid for content online at all. It was it was certainly looking to require certain companies to contribute to the production of Canadian content. Uh, but once content gets created, there this has nothing to do with those issues. Dr. Michael Geist, uh, obviously a Canada Research Chair in Internet Law, also a law professor at the University of Ottawa and the author of this piece, Null and Void, Speaker of the House of Common Strikes on numerous Bill C-10 amendments. You can find that on his blog at michaelgeist.ca. Thanks so much for making time for us today, Michael. It's always nice to check in with you. Appreciate your expertise here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having yeah, me. You bet. Have a great weekend. Um, you can let us know what you think on the live chat here. Of course, Sarah's keeping an eye on our hashtag RealTalkRJ. I don't have to tell you, I'm sure, but I will keep reminding you that our hashtag is powered by the team at Park Power. They've been there with us since the beginning. And of course, you know, for us, we find alignment with Park Power because they're one of these grassroots companies that they're less than 10 years old and they're already making big inroads in their communities because they understand what makes people tick. You know, you might say, well, who's your natural gas provider? I don't know, man, whoever ran the line to the house. Well, you have a choice where you're getting your electricity, natural gas, and internet. If you could choose a company that doesn't really care about much besides profits or a company that takes 10% of its profits and plugs it back into nonprofits where they live and work, which company would you choose? And then if you heard that company, that better option was also giving you 70 bucks off your first bill, no brainer. Use the promo code 2021-RealTalk at parkpower.ca to bring your business over and get that nice little discount off bill number one. Also a big shout out to the team right now at Eden Landscaping. It's gonna be a busy weekend for them. Their crews are absolutely wide open right now, just giving her in backyards, front yards, and beautiful spaces or soon to be beautiful spaces. Their teams for more than 20 years have been working with people that either have a very clear vision or people that are maybe more like us, you come into our space and we say, what do you think you could do? If you were dreaming big, based on your expertise, how could you transform this space? It's what they do. You can see the evidence of it, the proof on their website, landscapeedmonton.ca. Link to it through ours. That's 
Eden Landscaping, doing great work in Edmonton and surrounding area. Sarah Hoyles, I've been, I've been keeping an eye a, a little bit on, on the live chat, people talking about whether or not they take off their shoes in the house. And, and it's been really interesting to see, like Daniel brings up a very good point. You're going to somebody else's house and Daniel says, like, what if you have holes in your socks? Right. You want to keep your because you show up, you might show up at some fancy party. You might show up at some mixer and mingler and you want to wear the socks that are really killing it because you're wearing the, you know, your, your tailor told you that you should wear the sort of like flood pants now that your pants yep. should be up a little bit. Your socks yep. should be showing a little bit. And you've got that favorite pair of socks that fits really well, but the toes ripped out. So you wear your fancy shoes, too, because you think it's like a garden party. And then you show up and you realize everybody's got their shoes off. And oh, boy. Oh. Or if you're like me. I'm sorry, I'm going to say this. I'm just going to tell you the truth. Don't worry, I keep them trimmed. What are we talking about here? But if you've got like, <laughs> we got a pitch. Did you see the advertising pitch we got? I'm not going to say the name of the company. Did you see it? No. It's like, it's like a manscaping company. But oh, the, yes, but the yeah. name of the company is very specific. The, let me just, the, the word balls is in the name of the company. <laughs> They're like, we think your podcast is a great fit. I was like, mm. um, not sure. But feet, people like me, I do not have good looking feet. Well, really, who does? I have troll feet. Maybe babies have good-looking feet, but other than that. My feet are size 12 and a half. You know what that means, right? Big socks. And I and, and they've got a little bit of hair on them, and so you got to keep them trimmed. I keep them tight. It's summertime, especially. You're going to be wearing flip-flops, you know? But I don't want my feet on display at a party where I barely know anybody. So I always like it when people are throwing parties and this like just just for the party. You know, we're going to clean the floor later. I mean, but shoes on for the party. Yeah, I think that's the one time where it's like, you know, I'm not going to be the gatekeeper here. If yeah. people are needing to, especially like if you're having a barbecue out back and people are coming in. I mean, this is this is all pre COVID. Yeah. Um, so this is this is me just like blue sky in it. If, if we ever get there again, Doug's wondering. Oh, we're going to get there. Doug's wondering. Just everybody get your shots. Get your shots. Get your shot, shots. Shot, 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 I was talk, shot. I, I talked to yesterday. I, I was able to play some golf yesterday, and I, and I talked to a friend, and and he says to me, you have your second shot? Or he goes, are you vaccinated? Mm. I go, well, obviously. <laughs> and he goes, uh, like, both shots? I go, well, I have a half. I go, I've got one. And he's like, what are you waiting for? Mm. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, what are you waiting for? And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting for my, come get, you know, like, blah, 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 blah. I'm stammering, <laughs> stammering, stammering. And he's like, looking at me, and I said, why are you treating me like I'm a, like I'm a leper? Yeah. You know, and he says he he says to me, I said, do you think I'm the outlier here? And he says, like, all of a sudden, I'm the problem and maybe I am. And he says to me, he says, honestly, I think that if you're only half vaxxed at this point. Yeah, I think you're the outlier. He says to me. Wow. Yeah, I haven't. I'm I've got one shot as well. I haven't had the chance to to book my second shot. I mean, I that the intention is there. Yeah. But if somebody said to us, like, hey, have you got your first shot? If we say, have, and, and, have you got your first shot? And they go, well, no, but the intentions there, we would be like, what is your okay, good deal, point. buddy? Good point, good point. What is your deal? So anyway, so as these guys were, like, sharing a cigar yesterday and drinking from the same water bottle, they wouldn't <laughs> They wouldn't do. They're like, yuck, Jesperson. I out. kid. I kid. Did you know, I will just point out that the, the Twitter poll is up, FYI. So is it okay to wear shoes inside the house is okay. up? And if you want to take a little look-see at that what are, one. What are people saying? So far, the hard no is way in the lead at 70, let's say 79%. And the yep, where she was in the house, 21%. Okay, hard. We already have 468 votes in, a, a, in 11 minutes. This is a... Gosh, <laughs> like if, if we were to be like, 
Do you think Alberta should have a sales tax? We'd have like nine votes. Yeah. No, actually, that would be pretty huge. Yeah. That would be pretty huge. I, I see Jenny loves it. Jenny says it's a very American question, which is interesting. Hmm. Jenny Adams of the Adams Agency, they're our physical next-door neighbors, and they're bracing themselves for about an hour and ten minutes from now where they, 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 they no longer host business meetings Um Fridays around 10 o'clock because trash talk is coming. And I believe it's been somewhat problematic in past because our walls are not the thickest. So there's no meetings on, on zoom at the Adams agency Fridays around 10 o'clock. Okay. People are saying the hardest of nose, Linda Huang, who's been on the show before Linda says the hardest of nose to wearing shoes inside the house. Pretty interesting stuff. I want to get to some more of these comments. Um, you know, Clarice says, yeah, sure. Only because there's no carpet anywhere. Which is a, a bit of a, that's different, right? If you're wearing your shoes on carpet, way different than wearing your shoes on hardwood or, or lino or whatever else. Right. I mean, I don't want to uh, rub people the wrong way, but carpet, gross. Yeah. Like, period. Full stop. Gross. Like, hardwood floor, laminate, anything. Anything but carpet. So, peace officer Dwight Don, who's a fan of the show, and he's watching. He says, you know how much of a pain in the butt it is to undo these things? He's got his service boots on. And then put them back, especially when you're wearing your belt and your vest, right? Yeah, if I'm that guy. Like, if the police are coming to your house, they're not taking their shoes off. But it would be a nice gesture. I mean, come on. <laughs> and then all hell breaks loose and they have to chase a guy and they got to, like, sit down. They got to, like, be putting their shoes back. Hang on, wait, guy, wait up, wait up. Just give me give me a five. Just just a little head start, not a big head start. Katie says, I don't like cleaning up after my own dirt. Why would I want to add to it? Mm. Diane says, special shoes for indoors. The sweaty looking prints on hardwood and carpet are a no-go. She says, it must be nice to have perfect feet that don't require shoes. I'm with you, Diane. All these snobs. <laughs> Nigel says, I never used to. Okay, so here, there's always different perspectives. Always different perspectives. Like Nigel says, I never used to, but the chemo, my chemo, Nigel, we wish you well, my man. My chemo, he says, it affects my feet and hands for sensitivity. So he says, so I have indoor sandals that I use to give my feet some padding, and it makes it easier to walk around the house. Nigel, when you kick cancer's ass, let's hang out and have a beer. We're cheering for you. Tyler says, it's clearly unacceptable unless you're a little kid breaking in new indoor shoes for school by cruising around the house. He says, the same goes for wearing skates with guards on to break them in. He says, let's leave wearing shoes in the house to the Yanks. That is one of the most Canadian responses ever. Can you wear shoes in the house? Oh, hey there, bud. Only away. Wear your skates there, bud, if you got to break them in. But make sure you got the guards on, eh? Make sure you got the guards on, eh? Let's leave the shoes to the Yanks there, bud. It all of a sudden kind of became like a Minnesota thing as opposed to a canadian thing there but potato potato big shout out to everybody watching the show in minnesota and wisconsin today let's get into this real talk roundtable every friday right around this time we take on an issue of a relevant issue an important issue and we bring on the foremost experts in the country to talk about it today we're talking about parking and i'm very excited to welcome to the show the president of Totterin Urban Works out of Vancouver, Brent Totterin, more than 20 years of experience in advanced and innovative urbanism, city planning, and urban design. He advises clients in, in different cities. He's, he's worked in Ottawa and Sydney and Medellin. We were talking about Columbia just a couple of days ago, Auckland, Helsinki, and we're going to be talking about something that he's doing in Kingston 
little later on in the show. Brent, welcome here. Ashley Salvador also joining us today. Ashley is an urban planner and entrepreneur. She's president and founder of Yeg Garden Suites. She's been a strong advocate for a ton of city issues, including eliminating minimum parking requirements. And it's probably relevant to let you know that she's also seeking a seat on Edmonton City Council right now, though we won't talk much about her campaign because it would be unfair to the other candidates. But Ashley, I'm thrilled to see you running. Welcome to the show. And Victoria Horn rounding out our roundtable today. Victoria is the director of parking services for the regional municipality in Halifax. They're responsible for a whole bunch of things, parking management, on and off street parking, policy enforcement, customer service. They're making parking free in downtown Halifax, and we're going to find out why. Victoria, thanks for being here. Brent, why don't we start with you? You're the one that kind of, quite frankly, kick-started this conversation here on Real Talk. Tell, tell us about the work, the work that you're doing in Ontario right now. I think we've got you on mute, buddy. We'll just make sure we get you off mute, and then we'll be there able to you go. There you go. There's a number of cities across Canada that are right in the middle of tackling this, the P word uh, of city building, parking. Uh, and uh, in Kingston's case, though, we've been looking at bigger cities. We, we looked at Edmonton. We were inspired by Edmonton. We were inspired by Vancouver. And I'm the for, former chief planner here in Vancouver, so I know that system well. But there aren't that many small and medium-sized cities that have really fundamentally rethought the P word, the, the, the approach to municipal parking. And frankly, how the regulations for parking are really standing in the way of Kingston's own aspirations. Kingston wants to be carbon neutral within decades. It, it wants to be the most livable uh, or it's the most sustainable city in Canada. It, uh, it declared first Ontario municipality to declare a climate emergency. It wants to tackle affordability. And all of these big goals and aspirations, the way that they are regulating parking, the aha moment is it's actually standing in the way of achieving many of these big aspirations. So what we're doing in Kingston, and I've co-written a, a, a paper with the city staff that we've put out there with great fanfare to, to change the conversation, the perspective about how we plan parking in the city. Because first we need a new conversation, a quick new conversation and we're also presenting new ideas that would transform the way that kingston uh regulates parking to to make it more sustainable more affordable more practical more equitable more accessible etc and in doing all of that we want to we've been inspired by the big cities but frankly we want to show that this kind of innovation isn't just a big city thing there's a lot more cities of the size and scale of kingston in canada than there are cities of the size and scale of edmonton for example so we want every city to be knowing that rethinking your parking is a critical connecting of the dots if you take all of your big aspirations and goals seriously. I'm excited because I knew that we weren't just going to be talking about how can we make sure that people can park as close as possible to the front door <laughs> of Ikea. I knew that we were going to be talking about livability and sustainability and equitable offerings and all of these types of things that matter. Ashley, you've been on this for a while. I mean, you and I have spoken several times over the years about, in particular, eliminating parking minimums, which I think was standing in the way of a lot of development, especially inner city development or at least core development specifically in the city of Edmonton. Are you surprised to hear somebody like Brent say that some of the work that he's been doing has been inspired by Edmonton? Uh, are you a little bit surprised or no? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, 
Edmonton's been kind of an unassuming leader in, in many ways when it comes to, you know, progressive planning, progressive parking policy. Uh, so, yeah, I think a lot of municipalities and a lot of uh, urbanists across the country and really across North America took note when Edmonton did remove minimum parking requirements. Um, as Brent noted, we were sort of one of the, the larger municipalities to do so and really, you know, the first major municipality in Canada to remove those minimums. Um, and yeah, as Brent alluded to, there's there's many reasons why we pursued that. Um, from a city building perspective, you know, we have goals of becoming a healthy, more prosperous, uh, fiscally sustainable and environmentally sustainable city. And being able to pull on that lever of parking is, is one way for us to move closer to that goal. Um, and yeah, since we've last spoke, Brian, uh, Edmonton has removed parking minimums and things have not fallen apart. Um, you know, there were questions around, oh my God, are the streets going to be flooded with cars? And of course that crisis has not happened. Um, in, in the last year, we have seen a number of projects move forward with minimal parking. Uh, a lot of them located next to high frequency transit or LRT stops. So really removing those minimums allowed for greater flexibility. Uh, it's a market-based approach and it allows developers and landowners to decide how much or how little parking is appropriate based on their needs. Um, so like I said, greater flexibility, a greater choice, and really sort of leveling that playing field because Edmonton has a huge oversupply of parking. Um, over the years, parking minimums have really created more parking supply than we actually need. So this approach is going to sort of balance that out, if you will. Okay, so we'll, we will certainly circle back on that because, you know, Ashley, I want to I want to put a few things in front of you that I'm sure you've heard a million times. But, you know, the business owner that, that says, or for that matter, the consumer that says either I would never set up shop in that location or I would never attend a business at that location because there's no parking, uh, you know, what your counterpoint might be to that. But, but let's bring Victoria into this because Victoria, out in Halifax, making waves, uh, if you will, making... I suppose parking free downtown and you can clarify how that's working and also sending a pretty clear message to the population, to the residents and visitors there that you're going to be dialing back enforcement. Is this all about drawing business back into the downtown? Yes, it really is. So this was a recent council motion really in an effort to support business in the very short term. So not dissimilar to my colleagues here today in Halifax, we've been working on really aggressive parking policy over the last three years to align with our integrated mobility plan and our climate uh, action strategy here in Halifax, which has very aggressive uh, carbon emission targets. So we, we certainly recognize that short-term parking doesn't uh, accommodate those goals, but we also have to balance the realities of COVID and the pandemic. And so it's really about finding a balance between supporting uh, economic uh, recovery in the downtown cores and also supporting the goals of the integrated mobility plan and our larger parking strategy. So what we've opted to do and what council has uh, endorsed is instead of free parking all the time, which uh, we know doesn't work, it doesn't drive business downtown, it just makes downtown a parking lot. What we are doing is coupling free parking with special events that are occurring in the evenings when parking would have been cheaper anyway. So what we're doing in Halifax is on Thursdays and Fridays, we're offering parking from free, for free rather, from 4 to 6 p.m. Uh, parking in Halifax turns into free parking after 6 p.m. And so it just entices people to come downtown a little bit earlier, maybe pick up their kids after school, hit a patio, and then enjoy the wonderful events that are happening downtown, uh, through my colleagues in culture and development. So who did you have to sell on this? 
Uh, was there concern that, I mean, does the city revenue take a hit or where, where, where did the pushback come from, if at all? Uh, yeah, so definitely revenue takes a hit with this, but again, it's about that balance. So, so while our internal revenues may take a hit at the city, it supports broader business recovery or it addresses concerns that were raised by the business districts. So we felt like it was a, a balancing effort. Certainly, it took some convincing of, of myself, of some of our colleagues in planning and development and in active transportation to sort of temper the immediate reaction that this is counterintuitive to some of other council's priorities. But the, the goals and, and the initiatives are such short term. So it's just for the summer. It's just in that short period of time that we feel uh, that this is the best program to balance the demands from business right now, but also achieve long term goals of the integrated mobility plan. So other programs that we're offering through the summer are closed streets, uh, tactical urbanism projects where we're reducing street lanes, uh, encouraging the growth of our active transportation network. Those are all still continuing. So it's not one or the other. It's a number of initiatives happening all at one time quickly uh, to rapidly support business recovery downtown. So, Brent, uh, what, what, what Victoria is talking about, obviously, is, is how you're monetizing or, or not monetizing uh, existing parking infrastructure. Right. For the most part, do we need to have a completely different conversation about new construction like what Ashley might be talking about? You know, parking minimums or eliminating parking minimums for things like new buildings when, when you're having bigger conversations around. I mean, when the word sustainability, for example, comes in, you know, how, how does that factor into decisions both on existing infrastructure and new infrastructure? Well, here's the truth. When you bring in the word sustainability, normal people's eyes glaze over. And so what what we wanted to do in Kingston was have a conversation that isn't so jargony, isn't so mind numbingly boring. And trust me, I use all those words in planning company, too. But when I'm talking to the public, I know that they don't care about stuff like that. So we've written a, a, a parking paper that we call the power of parking, where we are talking about everything that's been discussed here today and a lot more, connecting the dots to all the big picture aspirations, telling the truth. We've got a section called the real parking problem because usually people talk about the parking problem being that there's not enough parking or that it's too expensive. When we know that in often, the problem is that there's too much parking and it's actually standing, it's, it's leading to bad building design and bad transportation and bad transit use and bad public realm design and all these things. And you can have, you can absolutely and often do have too much parking. So we're trying to reposition the whole conversation. To your question, we tend to think about lost revenue, like, oh my God, we're going to lose parking revenue. Well, what about the costs? of doing everything we're doing to facilitate the car, all the space costs, all the money costs that are virtually bankrupting cities and, and, and municipal budgets. So we need to have a completely different conversation, which is why in Kingston, we're having this one month long intense conversation where we are telling the truth, busting the myths, calling BS to use a really technical planning term on a lot of the misinformation out there about parking, because out of that comes new ideas that are positioned differently. Because if you just put out the stuff that says, well, we're gonna get rid of our parking minimums, then as you know, everybody says, oh my God, Carmageddon. And, and we know that's not true, but you need to do more upfront work. You need to talk in a way about parking that isn't so mind-numbingly boring. Uh, you need to get the public's attention and have a different kind of conversation. That's what we're doing in Kingston. And we're really trying to do it in a way that shows other cities a path 
to having a different conversation too. Okay, so parking. I want to give I want to give Ashley and Victoria a chance to jump in on this too. So I want to ask you a follow up question, Brent, and then I just want to get out of the way because because I'd love to have them chime in. When you talk about the you know all the BS that swirls around or the myth busting these these types of things, let's get into some of them. I mean, what what are what are some of the most pervasive myths that you're having to address or looking to address with the Kingston Project? Well, as an example, a simple example, the, the, the easiest myth is in, in, in Edmondson's case, if you get rid of the parking minimums, you're going to have no parking. Right off the bat, if you get rid of parking minimums, you might have just as much parking or even more parking because all you're doing is getting rid of mandated excessive parking. In other words, you're, you're getting rid of the commentary that says we've got too much parking and it's the city's fault because the city is requiring all that excessive parking. What it actually allows is you to have a conversation about uh, on a project by project basis about how much parking actually makes sense. And trust me, most developers don't want to under provide parking. Many of them still actually will oversupply parking because they think that's what the market wants. But this will allow a, a rational conversation where the city isn't actually mandating excessive parking. A second myth is that we're doing all of this because, well, we're just trying to help developers out. Listen, I'm a city planner for almost 30 years. I like when developers build stuff that cities like, but what we're talking about is the public interest. We've got a section in our report called the true cost of parking, and I'll spoil it for you. I'll give away the ending. It's very expensive and everybody pays. It starts with the developer paying a, a lot of money, putting a lot of carbon emissions into constructing too much parking, but then that cost gets passed on. It gets passed on to the buyer or the renter. It gets passed on to the employer. It gets passed on to the employee in the form of lower salary. It gets passed on to all of us in terms of higher taxes or foregone services that we can't afford to pay for. And that's even before we talk about the costs and consequences of things like climate change. So we need a fundamental reconsideration of who we're even doing this for. This isn't about developers making more money. Everything we're talking about in this context is about a better connecting of the dots to the public interest. The things we actually say as a city we want to achieve, and then we let parking stand in the way of achieving it. Ashley, I mean, this this is right in your wheelhouse. And as mentioned, we've got uh, we've had we've had the luxury of at least having one year since Edmonton voted to to eliminate uh, parking minimums. What have we seen in that year from developers what have we seen in response from the public and, and and any ripple effect so to speak with regards what people really care about let's be honest is their everyday life right if i go to this place will i have somewhere to leave my car and we'll talk about bikes in a bit but first ashley sure yeah so uh like you said ryan it's been about a year and all the fears that people had i don't think have really come to fruition uh, like I said, we have had a few projects go forward that have minimal parking, a few have no parking. And you know, those developers made strategic decisions based on their context and location and their target market. You know, they're literally located next to an LRT and they get to avoid, you know, sometimes millions of dollars of parking costs that would have been incurred because of parking minimums. Um, so you're, you're ending up with a more affordable project. There's ties to affordable housing here that we haven't even touched on uh, in depth. But as Brent said, you know, those costs that are typically um, incurred because of parking get passed into the rent you pay, the groceries you buy. Uh, so in that sense, we are helping create a more, more affordable city uh, by removing these types of regulatory um, constraints. And, you know, at the end of the day, like, we always joke that parking minimums are kind of this government mandated participation in the creation of this high cost, high emission city. 
like the, the government is essentially saying, okay, well, we've decided for you based on not a lot of fact, not a lot of data uh, that you're going to take part in, in this exercise. And it's funny, you know, if you look at sort of the roots and the origins of a lot of these parking minimums, there is no rational basis. Um, there's, I mean, you're a, you play golf, Ryan. Uh, the, the parking minimums for a lot of golf courses are based on the number of holes, okay? Some, uh, some curling rinks, the parking minimums are based on the number of rinks. And, you know, things like go-kart tracks, it's based on the number of, uh, of go-karts that exist for for this specific business so there's there's really no okay but ashley hang on a second Uh, let me just ask because i'm I'm not you know i just don't quite understand but i would imagine people would be saying okay so if i've got a curling rink in my neighborhood though and there's uh i i don't know curling well enough to even know what you call them sheets what do you call them rinks i guess so let's let's say there's (laughs) lanes it's not a bowling alley but let's say there's six rinks or whatever you call it six sheets um and people will say okay so there's probably like an average of six people playing at a time or eight people playing at a time six times eight 48 they've got people visiting mostly coming two car you know two person per car we should have 25 spa- spots minimum because if we don't have 25 spots then the cars are going to spill out into the street and then the, the, the you know the the, the locals are going to get pissed off because there's nowhere for them to park their four vehicles in front of their house anymore and, and it, this is how people think Right. So what's what's wrong with that logic? Why doesn't that logic work? So why is it the government's responsibility to determine how many parking stalls? I guess because people living down the street from the curling rink would be like the curling rink doesn't give a rip about me as long as their, you know, members can find places to park. They don't care about me. I need the government to protect me. But the curling rink cares about having customers and the curling rink as a business knows that there's demand for parking. So they're going to make that decision. You know, we are seeing developers recognize that we are still a fairly auto-centric society. Um, Edmonton in particular, you know, we have for decades been an auto-centric society and people still rely on cars. Um, So this isn't about getting rid of parking. It's really about allowing people to make contextual decisions. And, you know, in concert with the removal of parking minimums, uh, in order to deal with any sort of, you know, spillover that you're describing, Ryan, uh, the city of Edmonton is actually doing a uh, public parking action plan as well. And that's going to be about modernizing the management of off-street parking. So that's about sort of charging the right fees for off-street parking to make sure there's that turnover, uh, to make sure that, you know, in residential areas that are seeing a lot of that spillover, folks who live there, maybe there's potential for permits. Uh, So it's not just about removing minimums, it's about thinking about parking in general as this public asset um, and how we're managing that asset so that everyone is better off. Um, and that there's a higher quality of life in our neighborhoods as well. I want to uh, promise you, Ashley, that we will swing back because I want to talk to all three of you about affordable housing. And I know that that's that's big. I mean, we, we need to broaden the conversation. This isn't just about can I find somewhere to park when I go out to the restaurant or the hockey game? This is about way bigger picture than this. Um, and I want to I want to ask the three of you to get all kinds of esoteric in the second half of our conversation here. But when, when we talk about I mean, this is a great point from Aaron. Aaron's tuned in live this morning. She says, you know, everybody thinks that that no parking will kill business. 
until they see the vibrancy of a pedestrian or active transport street or a district even, uh, they can't visualize it in the place they are because that rarely exists. Aaron, uh, uh, that with a great comment there, and I can see, Victoria, you're nodding your head there like this comment is resonating with, with you. How, how does that apply to what you're doing in Halifax? Well, I mean, she's right. Studies show that... Uh Parking doesn't result in greater business. It's active transportation, it's open streets, it's streets that are pedestrian friendly. Those are the economic drivers for businesses in the downtown cores. And so it's really, again, about finding that balance and not dissimilar to Edmonton. We are a very uh, regional uh, area here in Halifax where the same HRM is the same size as the province of Prince Edward Island. So we need to be mindful about where our clients are coming from, how they're getting into the downtown, how we can meet them earlier in the transportation system. So with bus rapid transit corridors, with park and rides, with other strategies that don't just focus on bringing single occupant vehicles into the core. But Victoria, I just think- to, can I jump in for a sec? Because isn't it isn't it the businesses yeah. in Halifax that asked you to do this? They asked the city to come up with 185 grand to do the free parking thing because they're trying to get back on their feet after COVID. And and meantime, you're sitting here saying that you're, you're not even sure that that's that important or that that's the most effective step. So it is. So businesses did ask for that. And I believe that our role as public servants is to uh, act on the will of council. So we provide uh, council and I'm not suggesting that our council uh, isn't making an informed decision here. Again, these are about pilot initiatives. So the entire response with COVID has been around what can we do quickly? What can we do to meet the needs today? And then how can we study it? How can we analyze it and then get back to longer term policies and strategies? And I, I don't think Halifax is alone in that. I think there are other jurisdictions that are trying to do the same. It's about nimble, quick response to demand from business. And I think that we really look forward to gathering the data this summer about uh, how these parking strategies support business, if at all. And I think that we are a car-centric or or car-oriented area. And so I, I think it will Uh, reorient people back to downtown but when they park their car downtown for free potentially on a Friday afternoon maybe they'll they'll reorient themselves with the wonderful Argyle Street or with Portland Street in Dartmouth and how wonderful it is to leave your car five kilometers outside of the city and walk or take the ferry or take the bus or bring your bike and bike with your kids on our AT trails so there's lots of alternatives it's not at all suggesting that with introducing the removal of parking minimums or with increased uh, fees for parking downtown that we are removing the car altogether. The car is going to be here for some time. So it's about accommodating all modes of transportation and and showing with evidence and data to businesses, uh, both from other jurisdictions and in our own area, that, that these policies help support economic development. They don't hinder it. I'm going to ask uh, Brent and, and Ashley to pick up on that comment from Victoria in, in just a second. This is our Real Talk Roundtable this Friday. We're talking about parking and, and even on our live chat here now, Stephen rates Stevens in all caps. He wants to make sure I see it. Um, he says the property owner doesn't own street parking, Ryan. They are not entitled to street parking. And and Stephen, I, I had hoped that the that the, the, the demure smile on my face and the sarcasm that was dripping from my lips as I described the property owner irate they could not find space for their four vehicles would have indicated my acknowledgement of the fact that people don't own the street parking in front of their houses. I love this from Heidi, who says there's nothing more exciting than an entire street shut down for a farmer's market. And Heidi, I completely agree. I love it. I love the vibrancy. I love the life. As, as a matter of fact, 
and I'll ask our panel this in just a second. We've seen some streets shut down in some major cities through COVID-19 as, as a way to get people outside and allow them to have that movement to roam. And, and I've seen grassroots movements. What I mean by that is, I suppose, casual conversations from people that are saying, why don't we just leave it like that? I mean, we've realized that in some spots, maybe we should leave them like that. We'll get to our panel in just a second. Right now, I wanted to remind you, it, the weekend is upon us. The weather's been beautiful across the country for the most part. And Canadians are looking to get outside. That could include, of course, your plan for Father's Day. Maybe a picnic, maybe a little hike somewhere. What about a full-blown camping trip? Camper's Village has the best gear for right here. They know Alberta. Founded in 1963, Camper's Village has been keeping adventurous Albertans safe and comfortable. If I do the math quickly out of my head, I think that's 58 years. That's almost 60 years they've been in business. You can fact check me if you like. But what I do know, thank you, Sarah. What I do know to be a fact is that they're still locally owned. You know what's family owned? The Bryant brothers, uh, sons of former uh, Edmonton football great Al Bryant. Did you know that? And the two brothers, one brother lives in Edmonton, the other lives in Calgary. That's where you'll find Camper's Village as well. Two stores in Edmonton, one in Calgary, but you'll find them online. 24 hours a day open at campers-village.com and here's the thing you can buy online they'll ship to your door they ship across the country and most orders over 49 bucks ship for free at campers-village.com wanted to remind you that this studio is powered by the team at westworld computers our imacs our macbook pros our tablets they call them iPads and everything else on the go. Daryl identified the need, worked with us. We said, here's what we need to make our project tick. He says, there you go. They've been doing the same thing for businesses and residences for families for more than 40 years. You can find them online at westworldcomputers.ca. That's also where you can book your appointment. Their service techs have seen it all and they're ready to help you today. And if you are getting outside, if you're pulling a trailer or if you'd like to get off the beaten path, No truck does that better than Ram. From the wildly popular half-ton, the Ram 1500, all the way up to that big hauler, that 3500 one-ton, perfect for big, heavy boats and trailers. You'll find the best selection of Ram trucks, the shared inventories, at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. You can find them online and start browsing today under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Our Real Talk Roundtable today, we're talking parking with uh, three experts across the country. Victoria Horn joining us from Halifax Parking Services. Brent Totterin, who's doing work with the city of Kingston, but of course operating out of Vancouver, where he's the former chief planner there. And Ashley Salvador, an urban planner, founder of Yegg Garden Suites, joining us from our home city of Edmonton. Brent, when we talk bigger picture about parking, we're seeing a lot of people chiming in on our chat. No surprise, talking about bikes, the advent of e-bikes, the expansion of public transit in some major Canadian cities. How important is it when when you're planning, when you're building and designing? It's such an obvious question, but to be paying attention to trends and what is the way that what are the trends that we're noticing and how people move and how people get around their cities and what implications does that have for parking moving forward? Well, thanks for the fastball right down the middle for me. So that's it. That's an easy one. Um, we look at trends, but we also let's be let's be clear. My profession is called city planner, not city reactor. Right. Uh, it's part of my job to look at the public interest and actually try to create the trends because you want things moving in the right direction. So. Uh, During the pandemic, for example, in the five plus years before the pandemic, we were seeing huge growth in urban biking. 
in Kingston, for example, where I'm doing this current work, uh, Kingston actually has the highest increase in transit ridership over the last five years of any Canadian city. And so it's important to say that all this conversation about parking, we've got three different municipalities represented here. I've done work in hundreds of municipalities. Uh, there's no two cities are in the exact same place. There's always a context of where you are in your transit uh, achievement, where you are in your urban biking, where you are in your walking, your car share, which is a huge component relative to your parking uh, supply, et cetera. And, and even your density, your mixed use, how, 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 um, how you can get around with fewer trips, not just uh, different kinds of trips. So it's not a one size fits all approach. So when we look at trends, We've seen huge, we've seen a dip in transit during the pandemic. The question is how long will that last after we're all vaccinated? Uh, and we don't know the answer to that yet, but we know we need public transit to come back. We need it because cities function better uh, in the way that we need them to for public interest reasons when public transit is, is transforming car trips. We just know that. But at the same time as transit was going down, urban biking was in we were already calling it a bike boom for the last five years, but what's a mega boom? Uh, during the last 14 months, there's been an absolute global and Canadian mega boom of, of urban biking. Uh, the only limitation being, you know, the ability to be able to buy a bike because uh, the, there's shortages. And so how cities can get out in front of that or at least react to it quickly uh, is super important to this. So you'll see in our parking report in, in Kingston, it's a parking report, but it's got a ton of innovation about car share, about vehicle electrification, about transit uh, as its connection to parking, about walking and biking. And we're anticipating, we're looking forward to where the bikes uh, are going. Uh, bigger bikes, uh, uh, more expensive bikes. So bike theft is a much more significant public policy issue even than it was before because now it's not a $1,000 bike that's getting stolen. It's a $5,000 yeah. e-bike that's getting stolen. Um, you need to be able to have your bike parking in residential buildings and in the public realm be able to be plugged in. You need it to be able to fit a cargo bike. Uh, an accessible bike for, for folks that have accessibility challenges, um, uh, just carriers and, and trailers for the kids and for the groceries or for the Christmas tree, all the things that are getting moved with bikes in our cities. And you need the bike parking, the bike security, et cetera, to facilitate that. Because once you get all that there, that's when people start to say, hey, I won't just own a bike. I'll now think of my bike as an alternative to the car. And maybe even as an alternative to car ownership, and then you get less need for parking. And that's where you really need to be. So car share, biking, transit, walking, density, land use, infrastructure, everything, all connected. And we tend to think about parking like it's one thing and often the most important thing, God help us. But it's not, it's not the most important thing. And it's also not just one thing, it's connected to everything else we're trying to do in our cities. But all three of you know exactly what the what the detractors are gonna say. They're gonna be listening to Brent and they're gonna say, bullshit, somebody's bringing a Christmas tree home on their bike. You know, they're, they're, there's no way people are riding in minus 30. This is just more of the attack on cars. You know that people are gonna be saying that, Ashley. What would yeah, you- I've, I've, got an, I've got an answer for that. Okay. That's what is it? Bullshit. That's bullshit. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. I I am no I am no uh, booster for bikes. Okay. I'm not a bike activist. I'm a city planner who understands how successful cities work and less successful cities work. That's what I care about. And the more people biking, the better the city works for everyone. Period. 
full stop. Whenever I hear the war in the car, I hear uh, Rob Ford in my head because he's the one who invented that phrase. And I know that somebody either doesn't understand how cities work or is actually trying to just pay, make people mad. And that's the truth of it. And so it gets a lot of clicks. It gets a lot of uh, maybe votes from angry people, but it's completely oblivious to how successful cities actually work. So part of my job is to call BS on that. And actually, if we're gonna have a debate about how our city should be, we need to debate about uh, based on facts, evidence, data, and not just emotion and clickbait. So, uh, yeah. I appreciate that. Uh I had a chance, uh, this is off camera, but I was talking to Edmonton's mayor, uh, who's not seeking re-election, Don Iveson. I asked him that big question, uh, you know, when you start using that word legacy, when you talk to politicians that are not seeking re-election, at least not at the municipal level. And I said to Iveson, I said, what would you what would you prefer to be your legacy? Like, when people look back on your mayoral term, what would be what would you like them to recognize or appreciate that you've been able to accomplish? Uh, and, and, and he didn't think for more than one or two seconds. And he started talking about homelessness and affordable housing. And I know that that's been a big priority of his and of other civic leaders, of course, across the country and around the world. Ashley, people that are listening to you might say, what, what are like parking lots or what does street parking have to do with affordable housing? How, how do those two conversations tie in together? Sure. So when we talk about um, parking, as Brian was just sort of explaining, it's a much larger conversation. You know, you can't talk about uh, parking without talking about equity, without talking about sort of having a comprehensive integrated mobility system. Um, and when we're talking about affordable housing in particular, uh, that's really on the sort of parking minimum side. You know, a lot of projects are building more parking than they need when parking minimums are in place. So you know, think about an affordable housing project for a second um, and, and who's actually going to be living in a project like that. Oftentimes, the, the occupants of a project like that don't drive, uh, yet parking minimums will say you need to have one parking stall per unit. So, for example, if you know you're having uh, 60 units in this particular project, you have to incorporate 60 parking stalls. And of course, parking costs a lot of money. So per stall, you're looking at Seven thousand to sixty thousand dollars a stall, so that can make a make or break a project. You know, we're looking to have more permanent supportive housing projects in our cities, and if developers uh, and, and affordable housing providers are burdened with that additional layer of regulatory uh, red tape, if you will, uh, which is really just cost, sometimes these projects won't even go forward, and if they do. Uh, you know, the actual end product and the, the price that folks are paying to live there is going to be higher. Uh, so again, it's that idea that parking filter, uh, the cost of parking filters down into really every element of our lives, um, including the price we pay for housing. Um, and, you know, if we're thinking bigger picture, uh, not just individual affordable housing projects, but the affordability of our city in general, you know, parking makes for a really expensive city. And it's purely based on land use. You know, when we spread ourselves really thin and horizontal uh, because we've allocated so much land to parking, we actually create a less affordable city because when we spread ourselves thin, we're expanding outwards. We're creating new roads and new infrastructure and sewers and, you know, schools and libraries at the outskirts of our city, uh, which costs a lot to maintain. You know, a lot of these cities um, in, in Canada, especially Edmonton, we have a massive infrastructure deficit. We can barely afford to pay for the infrastructure that we've already built. So if we are creating, you know, these massive parking lots, uh, parking craters, if you will, 
it's going to be more expensive for every single Edmontonian because we're going to be paying for that in the taxes we pay. Um, again, filtering down to every single resident of this city. Hmm. Victoria, you've been involved in transportation planning for more than a decade, and, and I'm sure that your work in Halifax has included more than just giving people a break on parking tickets or, or, or you know, failing to, you know, not failing to charge, not charging people at, at certain points to try to draw business. What are some of the other, I mean, bigger picture uh, conversations that are being had, or what are some other pilots that you've undertaken, or what's some of the evidence, the database stuff that you can look to when it comes to not just what Halifax has done to this point, but, but moving forward and how how that city will continue to grow and and reflect what you know proper city planning or positive city planning looks like yeah so i think our two biggest uh, strategic plan movements if you will in the last 10 years have been the integrated mobility plan which council unanimously adopted four years ago now which really looks at transforming our entire mobility network as brent alluded to at the beginning of of his um discussion and so really what that's looking at we're a peninsular uh location here in halifax and dartmouth and so we have a lot of urban uh sprawl we have a lot of growth in uh less uh, urbanized areas and we have really two downtown cores and so it's about the regional plan reviewing our regional plan to ensure that core development is happening in areas where it's cheaper to provide those services where there are things like transit and light rail planned or sorry not light rail but brt planned uh, we just yesterday our mayor and federal partners and provincial partners announced uh, a study for an additional ferry being added to commute uh, residents from bedford into the downtown core which will have a significant reduction of single occupant vehicles uh, on two main arteries uh, bringing them into the downtown core so it's it's all of these strategies kind of coming together and then of course we have our climate uh, action strategy, which I mentioned at the beginning, which looks at re significantly reducing our emissions uh, by 2050. And so there's a lot of work ahead for public servants here at Halifax Regional Municipality and for our council. And they have uh, been very clear in our mandate that we need to continue investing in public realm infrastructure, continue in investing in active transportation corridors, in bus rapid transit initiatives uh, to, to really put our money where our mouth is and put the work into the infrastructure to reduce uh, these these uh, parking craters, as Ashley called them. So we're, we're not investing in off-street parking right now. We're investing in active transportation routes. We're not investing in um, single car investments. We're, we're trying to monetize that. So it's, it's all about driving that behavior change. And I think that those are the two largest policies, in addition to our, our planning strategies as well, which are also being updated and renewed right now, to look at introducing the removal of parking minimums, to look at working with developers uh, to, to do better social infrastructure instead of purchasing parking lots. So those are all of the things that we're working on here in Halifax, which are really driving that change to, to reduce single occupant vehicle dependency. I'm uh, I'm getting a kick out of uh, watching our live chat right now, and, and I'm not surprised to see a bunch of movers and shakers when it comes to planning and policy that are tuned in right now, which is great. Uh, that includes uh, community advocate Robin Patches, who's the president of the Oliver Community League, which is a, a pretty big community league in, in downtown Edmonton for people that aren't familiar. On, on a side note, uh, they're spearheading a name change of their own neighborhood. They're getting proactive in the spirit of reconciliation. Fantastic story unrelated to this conversation, but Robin 
Robin. Welcome to the audience. Uh, Robin says, you know, it's really frustrating uh, the amount of scrutiny that things like bike lanes or public transit face, uh, oftentimes from government, uh, when they're often a fraction of the cost of massive road maintenance or road expansion. I can see all three of you nodding your heads. Uh, I'll throw this one to you first, Totterin, and, and then we can take it from there. Is Robin's making, I, w- I would imagine you're going to agree with the point. Well, we get the scrutiny wrong. We get the prioritization wrong. We get the money math wrong. What we invariably do is assume that everything for the car is just a base assumption that we have to pay for, for society to function, and that everything else becomes um, a, a, a discretionary cost if we have some money left over. And often, especially these days, we don't. So, you know, all the money goes to cars. I've seen that over and over. And I've even helped cities look at all of their visions and aspirations and policies and statements, and then look at their budget and then look at their standards and their rules and recognize that there's almost a complete 100% disconnect in many cases between those two things. I actually, Edmonton was one of the first cities I did that for in, in transportation. So um, we we have to turn it around. What, what I've been working with cities and doing is saying, everything you say you want, you have to make easier. And right now you're making it hard. Everything you say you don't want, ironically, you're making too easy. Uh, it, it happens almost automatically in your system, and you need to change that. And when it comes to money, we th- we tend to think about everything like a cost. We mistakenly think that uh, putting money into car infrastructure is an investment, and putting money into transit or bikes is a subsidy. Every study, every math shows it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite, that every dollar you put into car infrastructure costs everybody about $9.00. Every dollar you put into bike and, and, and walking infrastructure saves m- about five dollars. Uh, there's actually a, ret- a multiplier effect in the spin-off investment. And transit's about neutral. So transit is neither being subsidized or not being subsidized. Guess where the socialism is? Guess where the subsidy is? Cars. To the tune of about nine dollars. Every dollar you pay, your 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 friends and neighbors are paying eight dollars or nine dollars to help you with that, pay for that trip. So until we do the math better, until we even have the conversation about what we can afford versus what is an actual smart investment with a, re- with a demonstrated return on investment and a saving of public money, then that we're, we're still going to be making the wrong decisions. So there's a lot that needs to change, including the way we even think about our municipal budgets. Uh, I can't wait till the podcast drops this afternoon and, and people hear that you've invoked the word socialism and we're, we're going to get 45,000 downloads in the first 15 minutes. It's going to be great. I'm so excited about that. Ashley, as mentioned, you're, you're, you're seeking election right now. Uh, let me ask you this. I, I know oftentimes that good public policy requires courageous political leadership, data-based, evidence-based policy that's passable, that comes into effect and, and isn't afraid to ruffle a few feathers. But you're not necessarily in that position yet. Do you have to dial back at the doors? Do you have to dial back your ambition a little bit, do you think, to get that seat on council first? Or do you get the sense that the average citizen, the average urban resident is open to considering different ways of designing and building cities that could pay off in the long term? What sense do you get at the doors? So, you know, Ryan, at the end of the day, Everybody needs to move around our city and it's about choice. I mean, it's not about dictating how individual residents are supposed to move around our city. 
it's about giving them options. And, you know, I chat with people on a weekly basis who tell me, I would love to take transit. I would love to be able to ride my bike to work, but they don't feel safe. They don't feel comfortable. Um, oftentimes it's way less efficient to hop on a bus versus hop in their personal automobile. So there, there is a desire, I think, for, for different modes and different options in our city. But as Brent was just saying, we have to be able to put our money where our mouth is and where our values are. And you know, Edmonton has a city plan that really lays out what those values are. As we work towards a population of 2 million, Edmontonians have told us that they want more options. They want a more climate resilient city. They wanna be healthier. They want complete communities and they want our existing mature neighborhoods to be revitalized. Now that's what they have told us and that's what they've told council. So, you know, as a candidate going in with that knowledge and that understanding that this is not me coming in and trying to say, oh, these are my ideas, uh, this is what I wanna do. I wanna fulfill the goals that have been set out in the city plan, which is a plan for Edmontonians by Edmontonians. And in that plan, I'm hearing and I'm seeing and council has been directed to create greater mobility choice. So that's, that's how I approach it, Ryan. Um, yeah, like I said, it's about choice. And I think uh, an interesting thing coming out of this pandemic is we have seen some of those options open up. Over the past year and a half, you know, more folks are out walking and biking around their communities than some have done in the entire time they've lived in their city. And uh, just to speak to that business piece really quickly um, that Victoria was talking about earlier, one prime example is on White Avenue. You know, we've seen streets pedestrianized. We've seen lanes taken away uh, from cars and parking and devoted to active mobility where people have that additional space to walk or bike or roll and businesses are totally fine with it they, they like it they invite it because they recognize that that type of uh, pedestrian traffic those are the people who stay those are the people who spend their money there's a lot of studies that actually say people who arrive by foot or by bike or by transit public transit actually spend more money. Well, yeah, they can drink way more, Ashley. Art. They can drink way more. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah. Don't drink and cycle. I'm just saying, especially if you walk, take transit or an Uber there, you can drink and spend way more. Not even to mention, Ashley, that, I mean, how many restaurants have we seen? Um, and again, White Avenue for those outside of Edmonton, what, what do I compare it to? It's, it's a bit of a stretch to compare it to Robson Street in Vancouver, but it's a it, maybe it, it's kind of like it has a bit of a Kensington vibe out of Calgary. I, I don't know. It's 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 one of those kind of iconic streets that used to have a bunch of awesome independent businesses. And we hope that more of them can come back. Uh, but they've been allowing and there have been programs in place to have restaurants offering temporary sidewalk patios as well, which has eliminated a lot of parking stalls. But I don't think that anybody in their right mind, if they're being honest, would be able to look in Old Strathcona or White Avenue right now and say that it's a bad idea, right? I, I haven't I haven't seen lineups of cars circling and circling trying to find parking. What I have seen is tables packed with people, distanced. Obviously, is it is it like Sarah's saying it's like Quinpool in Halifax? Is that how you pronounce it, Victoria? Quinpool is is that like the same type of area? So we do see we do see different initiatives come in, even if they're pilots that appear to pay off in the short term. What, uh, Victoria, why don't we why don't we go to you? I want to, as we wrap, give everybody a chance to sort of give us a closing thought or something to think about. Um, and, and maybe I'll ask it in the context of this question, but this is a chance for the three of you to to put anything out there in front of our audience that maybe you haven't touched on yet. Fifty years from now, what do cities look like in the context of parking and mobility? 
50 years from now, how's Halifax going to look different? Wow, 50 years from now, uh, I am hoping that there are not many cars downtown at all. Uh, our, our hope and our vision and our goal is that Halifax is a leader in pedestrian cycling um, uh, facilities and that it's a vibrant, uh, surviving, thriving downtown. Um, we're, we're known worldwide for our beautiful coasts, our wonderful harbour, our wonderful downtown and entertainment districts. And I, I'm just so looking forward to not even in 50 years and in, in a month's time, seeing that vibrancy return to downtown. And uh, that hasn't happened because of parking lots. It's happened because we have and our, our colleagues and our council has prioritized uh, public space, public realm, entertainment, um, and really uh, augmenting the vibrancy of our area. So I, I hope that that's what Halifax looks like. I think it will be interesting, and I'm interested to hear what the other panelists have to think about what the realm of the um, electric vehicle looks like, what it looks like for um, vehicles that are self-driving. We're, we're really focused on that right now in Halifax and, and looking at how we can help development uh, plan for that for the future mixed use development. So maybe you're building a parkade now, but it can turn into residential development in five years. Those are the things that we're, we're focused on here in Halifax. Ashley, what does Edmonton look like in 50 years? Yeah, so, you know, the, uh, the city plan gives us a pretty good idea of what we're supposed to look like. Uh, and, and that is a more transit oriented, walkable, uh, sustainable, fiscally responsible city. And in that city plan, you know, there's a large focus on something called nodes and corridors where we're able to build up density in key areas of the city, um, enough density to support local businesses, uh, enough density to keep our schools open. And, and enough density and diversity of housing so that people can live in ways that work for them. Uh, and same thing goes on the transportation side, having a diverse transportation system where people have options for how they move around. Um, that's really what is sort of outlined in the city plan. And, and of course, attached to that is a more climate resilient city. I mean, I think we have to realize here that it's not just about creating really good lifestyles. It's also about you know acting on this climate emergency that we're all facing. and. I think that through land use and through our decisions around transportation, we can make just a huge step towards climate resiliency and, and really re emissions reductions. So that's huge. Um, on the fiscal responsibility side of things, I mean, if we are able to achieve the city plan, Edmontonians are going to see about a 5% residential tax reduction. So that would be nice in terms of a future city. Uh, but at the end of the day, we can have these plans, we can have these visions, but it's going to take courage it's going to take commitment and everyday decisions that you know elected officials are making need to line up with that. So we need to be asking ourselves every single day, is this decision in line with the city plan? And if it's, you know, a massive auto oriented infrastructure project that's going to cost us way more down the line, maybe the answer is no. But if there's a good return on investment and it's an active transportation network or, you know, we're expanding uh, walkable neighborhoods, probably the answer is yes. Uh, so so that's sort of the 50 year outlook, uh, but it really does come down to making those everyday decisions in line with that future goal. This is literally the first conversation I think that I've ever had with somebody that, that advocates for more modern city design, more cycle friendly, less parking, 
allude to the fact that there could be a 5% tax reduction. That's like the first time I've ever heard it, Ashley. The people that always bang the drums for roads are always the same ones that are promising tax reductions or lower taxes. And the people that are oftentimes talking about things like more modern, intuitive, sustainable infrastructure that oftentimes makes some people a little bit nervous because they anticipate or expect that there's a huge tax hike that comes hand in hand with it, right? And just, just to jump on that, Ryan, you know, that's why municipal government and the work we're doing here at the municipal level is so fascinating is because those types of barriers are often broken down. I mean, you can be in the room with someone who is like hardcore environmentalist, totally all about sustainability, wants to see more bike infrastructure for that reason. And then another person who is all about fiscal responsibility, wants to see lower taxes, wants to see more uh, efficient budgetary decisions, and they can be aligned. I mean, that's the thing that's so beautiful about municipal government, because those those types of barriers are broken down and you can arrive at the same place. Brent, uh, we can talk as we wrap here uh, uh, about the work that you're doing in Kingston. I can ask you what you know, what does Kingston look like in 50 years? But you live in Vancouver. You've worked in Sydney and, and Helsinki and Oslo and all these kinds of cities. So why, why don't I broaden the question for you just a little bit? What what do cities 50 years from now, how, how, how dramatically different do cities look, at least the ones that are really in tune to this type of thing? Just before I do that, just to, to hit on Ashley's point, there can be that alignment that Ashley's talking about, but only if there is real information and myth busting. Because right now there are far too many people think, that think that everything we talked about today costs more money when we know that it saves money, period, full stop. And the way we've been doing things is literally the most expensive way we could possibly be doing it. And I, city after city in Canada is doing the math on that right now and showing that the tax hikes for continuing the status quo would be massive. So if you don't care about climate change, if you don't care about affordability or equity or any of those things, and all you care about is money, you should be all over this because it is all, all about, it's, it's not all about, but it's just as much about how much taxes you're gonna pay as it is about anything else we're talking about. Now, other cities. Um, the, the way we spend the next five years will determine my answer about what the cities of the world will be like in 50 years, period, full stop. There is not enough of a sense of urgency in our city making about the decisions we have to make now. And I say that as a city planner who is trained to be a long-term thinker. I was almost trained to be patient by definition as a city planner, because things happen over time and over generations. Not anymore. We are in crisis eras. We are in, I, I was talking about the five crises of city making before this pandemic. And what this pandemic has illustrated is that, and obviously no disrespect to plan making, because I do plan making, but the thing that will have more of an effect on the way Edmonton or Halifax is than their own plans, both cities have great plans, HRM by design and, and, and the Edmonton plan, great plans. But the, things that the thing that will actually have more of an effect is how we react to things like this pandemic. Because what we've seen in cities all over the world is that the cities that react to crisis and make change not just temporary change, but permanent change that addresses not only the crisis itself, but the pre-existing conditions that the city was facing before, and actually at the same time taught themselves on how to react to a crisis, because we're not good at acting, uh, reacting to crises as we've seen in the climate emergency so far, those cities win, those cities succeed. European cities, Latin American cities are much better at this than we are. 
you know, European cities transformed themselves after the oil uh, crisis in the 1970s, whereas in North America, we went back to gas guzzling cars. So we've got another chance. Right now, European cities are, are all of the stuff they did during the pandemic is permanent. And their cities are better, more livable, more equitable, more economically successful because of it. And they're addressing urban pollution. They're addressing all the things that they had and climate change because they recognize that one of the consequences of climate change is more and worse pandemics. So if you ask me to picture what downtown Edmonton or, or suburban Halifax is going to look like, I picture in 50 years or even five years, I picture what it would mean if we don't get smart and start to address in our city making how we address climate change with its many consequences, including more pandemics. Look at the last 15 months and the effect it had on our cities. If that is not a wake up call for you on how we're not taking this kind of thing seriously enough and the implications it can have to our vision of success as planners, then we're still asleep. And I say that as someone who used to be patient and, and was trained to be patient, but I'm not patient anymore. We need a strong sense of urgency in our city making and our city transformations. I know I promised to let you all go and I promise I will. But but Victoria, something's popped up and I just I have to get it. So I, I promise this will be the last question. I promise. But Elizabeth has a really interesting point. And she says, hey, Halifax. This is in our live chat. She says, hey, Halifax, free public transit not free parking would drive behavioral change. What would you say to Elizabeth? I say, Elizabeth, excellent point. Uh, so uh, Councillor Austin agrees with you and asked for that uh, amendment right on the floor. So staff are in the process of writing a report and returning back to council with free transit options as well for the summer. So we don't disagree. Again, it, uh, the, the report and, and the resulting actions were, res we responded to what council asked uh, we presented a couple of options and we presented the best option that we felt best aligned with business recovery and best aligned with the quick time frame to implement. But uh, I don't disagree. We're, we're hoping to uh, have council endorse free transit as well over the summer and staff are working on on implementing that uh, throughout the summer months. So free transit and ferry in Halifax. All right. We'll keep an eye on what happens in Halifax. That's Victoria Horn from Halifax Parking Services. Uh, Brent Totterin uh, from Totterin Urban Works out of Vancouver. And of course, urban planner Ashley Salvador out of Edmonton. Thanks to the three of you and have a great weekend. Our pleasure. Much appreciated. Uh, I'm sure that that something of what you've heard today has resonated with you, and I and I look forward to having this conversation continue. I suspect that our hashtag will will blow up this afternoon when the podcast drops, and our subscribers have a chance to start listening to this show. And we do want to hear from you. The hashtag Real Talk RJ, and of course, you can send us an email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. I've really enjoyed uh, keeping a, a, an eye on the live chat, Sarah, and there's a lot of talk about um, an evolution to cycling and, and some of the predictable pushbacks, uh, which I don't think necessarily imply that people are stuck in the past. I mean, some people are saying, listen, listen urban sprawl ha has been the biggest detriment or has been, been the biggest factor against the cycle commuter, mm. uh, you know, in many, you know, in a long time, other people are saying, hey, listen, some people are saying, I, you know, I, I chose my place. I mean, we bought our house because of how close it was to work or it allowed more walkability or these types of things. I love that people are talking about it. We don't expect that everyone's going to agree on everything, but some pretty great points from all three of our panelists today. Yeah, I found it very interesting um, to hear, I mean, especially in Halifax, the idea that businesses and I guess it's 
to me, it's what happens in a lot of municipalities. Businesses throw around anecdotal uh, claims that we need parking. Yeah. And it's and then councillors feel pressure and then councillors then say, OK, we need a plan for this. Um, our constituents are saying this. And um, I, I just want to go back to the data. And I think I, I just really appreciated the points around what does the data say? And the data says people that bike and walk cycle, roll, whatever you want to say, um, they have the ability to make more frequent stops. They are more likely to be the, the folks that are in there buying stuff and trying stuff sure. and window shopping. So I also know I, I bring anecdotes all the time, which I know are not evidence. No, they are not. <laughs> they're not evidence and they're not data. But anecdotally, a friend of mine who's owned a, a, a retail uh, store that's now changed locations, I, I thought they had a prime spot at a busy intersection in the city a while ago. And I asked them why they're not there anymore. And they said nobody could find parking. So it was a nightmare for us. Hmm. So, I mean, that's anecdotal. That's one person. It's in a walkable area. It's in a movable area. So I don't know. I mean, it's but it's great to hear from I mean, the, the planner's perspective. Like, I appreciate a little bit of swagger there. You know, when Brent says, like, this is the way it is, period, full stop, not up for debate. If people can back it up, I respect that perspective. You know, we'll, we'll debate some things. Other things are not up for debate. This is what the not Jesperson's anecdotes. This is what the data and the evidence tells us. And I appreciate that. I mean, but also looking at like we are in as all of our panelists alluded to, we are in car culture. So it's not going to be a 180 immediately, but we need to start making those. I believe we need to start making those shifts. And that's what I, I, I felt I heard from the panelists was the idea that, yeah, that's the way that our cities are built now. And so when people are saying, but I need to get here and I need and it's like, OK, understood. That's where we are now. We need to stop just saying that this is the default. This is the status quo. This is this is how it has always been and should always be. And I think that to the point of, you know, we have sprawl. E-bikes are, are a game changer for that. It's allowing people to go longer, faster, further. Hmm. Uh, we're going to check in, not right now, but in just a second on our unofficial unscientific Twitter poll of the day. Um Less important, admittedly, than conversations around urban design and parking. But we're going we're gonna to take on uh, the, the uh, I, I would say, divisive question, but the statistics show otherwise uh, in just a second on wearing shoes in the, ha in the house. Uh, right now, though, let me remind you that at powered.ca, Athabasca University presenting PowerEd. This is online, on-demand learning. An amazing opportunity for you to to gain some certification, to gain some knowledge in, in areas that, that really matter, especially this sort of, can you call it a pre-post-pandemic? Like we're looking ahead to the, <laughs> can it be the- That's very optimistic. I love yes, that. It, it's very, this is very glass half full. I love it. We are in the pre-post-pandemic era. And that means that people- are looking to become better certified in areas like machine learning and artificial intelligence and digital wellness. And maybe you are more optimistic than you've ever been because the job market is going to be hungry for the skills you bring. PowerEd.ca is a great way to broaden your skill set. And right now with a lot of people, especially through Pride Month, especially as we take a look at the, the relationships with the federal government and indigenous people, more and more people are talking about allyship and inclusion. 
And right now to celebrate Pride Month, PowerEd is offering up a 10% discount. You can see the website right here, powered.ca, a 10% discount for Real Talk audience members. 10% off the cost of a course. This is amazing. Visit powered.ca. Use Real Talk 10. That's the promo code Real Talk 10 at checkout to claim your offer. They've got a new micro course, Embracing Allyship and Inclusion. Very cool stuff from Athabasca University's Power Ed. Also wanted to remind you that if all this talk about sustainability and the conversations around your table include sustainable energy, green energy, and you're wondering, hey, I mean, the cost is dropping on solar. The tech is way better than it was five or six years ago. Maybe today's the day to look up kubienergy.ca. Jake and his team have head offices in Edmonton. They're working out of Kamloops, two teams across Western Canada doing all kinds of solar installations. You don't have to know the first thing about it. That's why you go to the experts at Kubi Energy. And a reminder, Kubi presents positive reflections every Monday. If something has absolutely made your day, if something has just infused joy into your life, if it's filled your bucket, like we say in our house, we'd love to get your email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Label it Positive Reflections and send us what you've got. Our unofficial unscientific Twitter poll this morning, uh, prompted by a piece in the National Post, my pal Tristan Hopper uh, writing that. By the way, when we mentioned we'll get Hopper on the show, half the audience was like, yes. And then the other half on the live chat were like, boo. And I thought, perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Is it okay to wear shoes inside the house? Uh, as of right now, uh, this has been up for, uh, what, about an hour and 20 minutes. We've got 1,800 votes. Uh, you hit a you hit something there. You hit a nerve. I don't know if it was me or you, but somebody <laughs> did. 80% of respondents, like 80.2, 80% on the nose say hard no. And what you've done here, Hoyles, in putting this unofficial unscientific poll together, what I like about what you did you, you didn't pussyfoot around it. You, you didn't nope. tiptoe in the tulips, as my pal Laws says. You didn't leave a third option of it's complicated or it depends. You have yup and hard no. Well, I, I just felt like I wanted some divisive or de- I should say decisive rather, not divisive, decisive polling. Well, you wanted divisive. Let's be honest. <laughs> it's okay. Producers never want to go on the record and say I was trying to be as divisive as possible, but... <laughs> You knew what was going to happen. You knew exactly what was going to happen. <laughs> T-Rex says, T-Rex says, wearing shoes in the house says that's the nuttiest thing that Americans do. Well, maybe except for the time they voted in Donald Trump or their obsession with guns or their privatization of health care. T-Rex is a physician, says, but I digress. Uh, Brian says, I grew up in a hard no Canadian household, no shoes in the house, but I married an American from a big yup household. <laughs> so he says, now we have a not a big deal, but only if it's a clean house here interesting from brian the cross-cultural communication going on there oh i love this lord randall scott mcdonald says if you are talking about visiting someone's house that is a gray answer so let me let me be clear here randall mcdonald uh for people that know him he tweets at leroy du uh is is like a he, like what he do, he like hosts parties that is what he does i've as a matter of fact attended a party at his house back in the day and i brought a second pair of shoes beautiful patent leather shoes i mean this was like this guy is like does not mess around his apartment looks like the palace of versailles like i'm serious so i brought extra shoes to wear to his place because i had be well i suspected it was going to be that kind of a party and of course it was he's says but you must be invited by your host to leave your shoes on mm. he says now if you're a host and you don't mind then let people know they can bring indoor shoes so that they're clean and then there's no confusion p 
Peter just in all caps. No, 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 no. And for the technical producer in the back, no, says Peter. <laughs> Dylan says, absolutely not. I love this is becoming like a pile on Americans thing. He says, that's the one thing I always notice in American TV shows and movies. Shoes on in the house. It's disgusting. Jenny says, respectfully, clean shoes are fine if you're planning to be in and out from the yard. You know, if you're staying for a length of times, you don't need them for pain or walking support. The polite thing to do is to remove them. Paul, I like Paul's nuanced answer, says on carpet, definitely not. On hardwood or tile, sure, sometimes. He says summer only, of course. And that's a different thing, too, right? Middle of winter, you're walking in your... I don't know why I wanted to say galoshes, but like, <laughs> what? I'm thinking of Beverly Cleary and Ramona the Brave yeah. and the, the wet galoshes. But anyway, he says, moving in into the house a lot when you're on your deck having a barbecue, leave your shoes on for sure. Chris is in a wheelchair, says, I've got to clean my floors every couple of days uh, where oh. your shoes doesn't make a difference. That is, what a great point. Yeah. Chris's shoes, so to speak, the wheels, they're indoor, outdoor, right? Chris has got to keep it clean. I mean, that's what I would wonder about because you're going, the shoes, summer or winter, whether or not it's like moisture, it's, there's still germs. And so to Chris's point that he's cleaning the floors every couple of days. Yeah. Amy says, I voted no, but I do think that some households have like inside shoes and the practice is common in other cultures like Japanese cultures. Oh, I guess I could have put in the Twitter poll. Is it okay to wear shoes from the outdoors to the indoors? But, but now you're getting too complicated. Yeah, that's true. Now we just like yes or no. To me, it's a yes or no. It's a it's a yes or a and no. I'm, and, and to me, it's a no, hard no, except for I'm a hypocrite. So it would be like sometimes. <laughs> it would be like hard no, except for like if you're in a hurry or you this, that, and the other. But but I would also say like, you know, I'm going to get all a little bit off track here. I know it'll surprise everybody. Um, but I think of like our home is is 108 years old and so like the, the the wood of it is a is a beautiful thing and we recently had the hardwood floors redone but not completely renewed in other words mm. we wanted some of the dents and the grooves like some of them and we needed i mean it needed some repair it needed some attention to allow it to be there for another hundred years but the dings and the dents to me you know what those are those are like sock hops you know, th- those th- those are family parties. That's like someone. Came, I, I mean, I'm making all this up in those my mind. Memories. But it's like someone came home from World War One, or someone came home from World War Two, and the family threw a big party, and and, and someone like dr- dropped a cigarette on the floor, and it like burned its way in, and then someone dropped a thing, and it scuffed, and they'll never forget it. And and the hand railing that's mm-hmm. 108 years old. Like what happened? Like was was a young girl coming down for her high school graduation, and her her mom saw her for the first time and burst into tears, or or was there something where like you know. The, maybe the you know the mom to be was like grasping the the the, the hand railing and said and, and announced that she was expecting for the first time and there was joy and all that like I I envision the touch the nature of it like I lay on the floor I'm like a real off camera I'm a bit of a weirdo but like I connect with places and I connect with spaces and and I think that like if you're having the big welcome back from World War II party you got to have the shoes on in the house it's a party for Pete's sake so I I think that no. there's Still no shoes. It always makes me feel like I'm at a kid's birthday party. You know, you show up and you bring like a nice bottle of scotch and and you come in and you're all dressed up and your shoes perfectly match your belt. And then everyone's like shoes off at the door. Oh, like, oh, when does Ronald McDonald show up to make balloon animals for everybody? It just feels a little. So you're saying that wearing inside shoes inside the house is the adult thing to do. What I'm saying is uh, what I'm saying. And don't you put words in my mouth. (laughs) 
What I'm saying is that I'm obviously all twisted up on this. And and if I could on the Twitter poll, I'd probably be changing my answer every five minutes. There was a very important tweet that came in, actually. Uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. A very important tweet. Are you wanting me to show this one? I, I, I can, feel that this I can is... call it up very quickly. Are, are, are you talking about uh, wildly popular uh, influencer and lifestylist Carrie Skelton. Uh, I think I would be. Uh, are, 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 you, are you talking about uh, she behind CarrieSkelton.com, mm-hmm. uh, who just happens to be my wife? Y- you can see right here she's retweeted what we're doing, and she says, oh, I'm so glad you're doing this poll. <laughs> she says, I'm so glad you're doing this poll. She's What you've done is created problems for me at home, Sarah. You're because, welcome. Because now Carrie will have statistical evidence. I'll have to remind her. I'll have to remind her that unfortunately our Twitter polls are unscientific and unofficial. But she'll be able to say to me, sweetheart, uh, with 1,934 votes after just 90 minutes, 80% of people believe that you yourself are a caveman. And I've been right the entire time. And I will have to acknowledge this, which I shall with dignity and respect. I also wanted to touch on something else if I could. And this is more going to be for our YouTube viewers than it is for our podcast listeners. But yesterday we spent some time talking to Dr. Fairless, this, this vet who took us into serious subject matter, uh, the mental health challenges that veterinarians and, and vet techs and people in the office that are working with animals oftentimes face way higher rates of suicidal ideation and death by suicide. And we went, what? Really? Maybe not totally a surprise once you start to think about it, once you start to get into it, but a really powerful conversation. What I think was even more powerful, not like it's a competition, but you and I started talking after. And when we started speaking after, we started talking about pets, and, and you and I didn't plan on doing it, Sarah. We didn't plan to be talking about this, but it, it started this conversation that continued through the day, and everybody started sharing their photos. I'd like to kick this off by recognizing an animal that's very special to me. So if we could get this photo up, this is Moses, and this is our boxer. He is an absolutely beautiful, beautiful boy, and he is just on his best behavior. You can see here with his bow tie. Uh, This photo is from his feature in uh, Avenue Magazine, where he was one of the featured dogs of Edmonton. He was on the centerfold with Connor McDavid's dog, and Moses was very proud of that. Moses today turns nine. It's Moses's birthday today. And so we will be celebrating him last year for his eighth birthday. I kind of I didn't forget his birthday was coming up, but but I sort of lost track of the way that the household works. And I looked into the fridge and Carrie had just gone shopping at Friesen Brothers. And I was like, oh, wow. I was like, wonderful. We have this grass fed ground bison. And she heard me. I was like, "Ooh!" I'm like, bison. she's like, leave that alone. She's like, that's Moses's birthday cake. That's for Moses's. I was like, oh, what do, we, what do we get? Like Smokies. And Moses will be eating like grass-fed bison tonight. <laughs> He'll be getting his birthday cake. But he might share. Yeah. I mean, he. well, you don't know Moses. No, okay. he won't. He'll, he's like, who's a good boy? And he's like, I'm a good boy. And you're like, Moses, you're so sweet. And he's like nuzzling up to the like the, the, the three-month-old infant. And everyone's like, oh, boxers are so wonderful with kids. And they're so good. And then another dog will come sniffing around Moses' food. And he's like, <laughs> and you're like, oh, jeez. <laughs> Whoa. Easy there. Easy, boy. So he's one of those. So there's not a lot of sharing of the birthday cake. Maybe we'll slice off a piece for Monroe for his sister, the Black Lab. And you? Are you going to get a slice? Probably not. (laughs) 
Probably not. Um, so you shared with us your photo, and I don't, I don't have it. I just wanted this is like we could do this for positive reflections on Monday, but I'd rather just do it today because I'm about to get everybody all whipped in a frenzy with trash talk, and then we'll like leave on the weekend with our blood pressure, like whatever the high number is, 180 over 110 or something like that, making it up. Um, but but let's get into this because I just I, I loved what you did, real talkers. And there's more coming in now, and I know there's going to be more. But 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 Corinne said, meet Trisket. She said, we were, we were talking about saying goodbye to your daughter. We were talking about really difficult decisions. It was heavy subject matter about, about when it's time to let your dog or cat or animal cross the Rainbow Bridge. And people were writing in to say, I'm, I'm weeping as I'm listening to this podcast. And Corrine said, meet Trisket. She said, our, our dogs have always lived their best lives and, and we've always held them as we've let them go. We owe them that much. Corrine says, also, I'm crying. I just want to scroll through. Look at this, Brad. This is Daisy Dane. What a beautiful, beautiful girl. MJWS says, if you got no fur babies, you got no character. <laughs> I mean, I mean, <laughs> I love this. Look at this. Uh, Albert says, this is my little feral cat adopted a street kitty. Lots of claws and teeth at first, but he's really grown up. Says keeping this little guy fed and happy is one of the main reasons I'm still alive. What a comment from Albert. I feel so. Uh, my heart hurts for Toby, who says we lost our copper beautiful spaniel we lost copper on mother's day 2020 who passed after surgery what about this from nancy nancy says this is andy and corky they were best buddies the second they set eyes on each other says both have passed on now several years away my eyes are filled with tears my lip is quivering if love could have saved them they would live forever nancy that is so beautiful sheena shared with us chino look at chino 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 kind of strikes me as what I was just describing as Moses like oh you're such a good puppy and then like do not mess with Chino (laughs) right Chino was born to a street mama says Sheena rescued at 10 weeks malnourished timid Sheena says rescuing is the most beautiful experience he is grateful brilliant gentle and a serious fan of cuddling we're lucky to be his family that from Sheena who says vets are heroes by the way Look at this. The husband of Sharon says, Miss Ms. Bailey Bones supervising my Twitter. I love it. Mike shares another photo of Fergus. Remember, we celebrated Fergus on Positive Reflections a couple weeks ago. He says, here he is with his younger brother, Clark. <laughs> Shitter, Clark. Sh- shitter's full, Clark. No, probably. <laughs> I'm, am I missing a reference? Fergus and Clark. Is that from a movie? Did you hear about do, do, you, no do, do you remember hearing my, my thing when I really stepped into it? When, when Sam Brooks w- exhibited me as having like zero cultural knowledge. Was he talking about the sharks and the jets? Yeah. And and I was like, that's, we we're talking about rivalries. And he's right. like, that's like the sharks and the jets. I'm like, that's not a rivalry. The sharks and jets have, have never had a single playoff series. What are you talking about? And he's like, West Side Story, West man. West Side Story. West Side dude. Story. I was like, right, right. Nancy, they rescued their elder pup, Josephine, three years ago. But I love this. Nancy says, it turns out she rescued us. I'm grateful. Look at these eyes. I'm rest. She said, I'm grateful each and every day that she chose us. Mike, Vinny Van Gogh. Look at this. Look at that. Is that a, is that a Husky or a Malamute? I'm he not sure. Very Malamute. Yeah. It says Vinny Van Gogh is my best friend and he tries very hard to be a good boy. Oh. Vinny Van Gogh. Look at that dog. That's the type of dog where you look at that dog and you go, dogs are came from wolves and you go, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Vinny Van Gogh is the guy that like, if you're the thief, if you're the burglar coming in through the doggy door and then you see Vinny Van Gogh waiting for you on the other side, you're <laughs> gone. Okay. Bye. Oh, look at this from Gary. Gary says, we said goodbye to our stitches. Stitches, Mark. Oh, pardon me. March. So the stitches on March 7th, they said goodbye. Almost 18 years old. Stitches. 
May beautiful stitches rest in peace and power. Love this rink rat. Uh, I love the, the hip reference. Opie on the left and Grace too on the right. Look at those dogs. Uh, Crazy James, this is Dinah. What a beautiful cat letting James know that she is the boss. James, you work in sports memorabilia. What's up with all those McFarland figurines? Cujo on the Oilers? You kidding me? Marley said goodbye to their penny girl in November. She says the only upside to the pandemic, her last months were happy with longer walks, more playtime and endless snuggles. Marley says, I miss her every day. This pandemic has been really good for animals, I think. Really good. I mean, that's a very general statement. Uh, I mean, there have been lots. I mean, some of the shelters were basically emptied right out because people were looking for that pandemic puppy or pandemic pet. Yeah. Um, I think one of the sadder sides is as people are going back to work, either the animals are not enjoying the amount of attention that they were used to, Mm -hmm. or people are bringing animals into shelters now um, or abandoning them because they're just like, well, I don't need you anymore. Yeah. And I I just like animal pets are family. They are Mm. a family member. Mm. Oh, did we? Did I ask you this? I didn't ask you this on air. Sometimes I get. I'm like, did I ask you this on air or off air? I don't even know if I asked you it at all. I'm actually glad there's plexiglass between us because you might come at me for this question. But my buddy asked me this the other day, and and I answered very quickly. Not everyone. Would you sell your dog for a million dollars right now? Right now, come on, a million dollars. Absolutely not. A million dollars. No. You know that yesterday we were talking about the vaccine lotto, and Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to enter in that. So. It shouldn't come as a total shock. I think I might do. I think I might do another unscientific, unofficial Twitter poll. People are going to judge me for asking the question. <laughs> but would you sell your dog for a million dollars? A million dollars. But do you get to see them afterwards, or is it like? Sure. You know what? One of my. This is so dark. I'm not going to say who she is across the hall, but we asked one of our, you know, neighbors here. I, this is so horrible. If you stick around. Two hours into Real Talk on a Friday, sometimes one of the privileges that you enjoy is that you, we will start asking unconventional or more offensive questions. You know, she says to me across the hall, she says, the better question would be, would you kill your dog for a million dollars? I said, what are you talking about? She says, well, it's too easy. Sarah, it's a joke. But she says, she says it's too easy to ask, would you give it away or would you sell it? Because you could just go visit it. She says it has to, the question should be, would you put your dog down for a million dollars? I was like, that's deep and heavy. You'd actually learn that you look so appalled right now. You would learn a lot. I bet you there's people that would. Of course, there's people well, that of would. Of course, there are people that would. A million dollars. Well, this is how we can separate people in society. These are the questions we should be asking. You get more insight. Look at how I've never seen you look so troubled in your entire oh, life. I've known you for seven it. weeks, but. Oh. So you wouldn't sell your dog for a million? Never. Do I dare look into the live chat right now and see what people are saying? Do I dare look into the live chat? Daniel says, I. I he says, I wouldn't sell my dog for a million. I wouldn't live to spend it. My wife would kill me. Nicole says, how do you sell a family member? Sandra Amen. says, you don't sell a loved one. Miranda would sell her teenager for a million dollars. James, not a chance. James would sell his cats for a million. Nadine would sell her husband for a million, but not her dog. Uh, and Blake says, money isn't everything. Okay. Mm. Okay. And then Doug is coming to the defense of Americans in the live chat, which I appreciate as well. But we've moved on from our we've moved on from our shoes in the house conversation. I want to get back to some more of these. Amy, her her, her babies, Eeyore and Petite uh, crossed the Rainbow Bridge a couple of years back, says, I'm so thankful that I work from home. I was crying during Sarah's remembrance of her dog. 
Loving our pets, says Amy, makes us more human. Steffi shared, we lost baby Ruth on July 22nd of 2018. Look at that beautiful girl. Luckily, we still have sweet Bianca, but she misses her big sister. If people want to see these, these are all on Twitter. They're all on my Twitter. You can find them. Uh, If you're listening on the podcast, uh, you can, of course, check out our YouTube yeah. Um, if you like what you see, smash that like button. Robert circled back with us. You remember, I was like, remember that beagle named Bruce? Yeah. And you're like, you mean Kipper? <laughs> so Robert chimes in and says, thank you for remembering Kipper today, a.k.a. Bruce. And then he shares the video of Kipper singing, which is absolutely beautiful. Look at this. Tracy, her two rescues cooling off last summer. Lindsay says, my Charlie. There she is out paddling with her Charlie. The best time with the best boy. Marie with a sad story about tacos says I miss tacos so much. Look at this. Sam Brooks. Sam's not with us this morning. Sam's out in BC. He says Sophie was the best co-pilot. Sam drove his convertible out to BC. And I love that Sophie is co-pilot. Sophie just co-piloting in the front seat. There you go. Genevieve shared a photo of Remus. Look at that beautiful brindle. Says he would like this moose jaw bone that I found in the woods. Look at that. Look at Remus. What a beautiful, beautiful pup. Patrick shared a, a shot of, of Ryder, who was recently diagnosed with cancer. Ryder, we wish you the best. Cody says, this was my dog, Smokey. He was an older dog. When this photo of us was taken, he'd watch over me when I was a baby. And, and, and when we had to put him down, it devastated me. Hmm. Says, I still miss him 20 plus years later. These are, I mean, I don't, I, I feel terrible. I don't have time to go through all of these, but you get the idea. Kim is sharing a beautiful photo of Hondo and, and Bert in the shower from DK and, and Daisy, who Marie rescued from the Lethbridge pound until they had to put her down. Severe pain, arthritis. Look at this. Atticus, Chewy, Gordy, and Ash. Beautiful kitties. Squeak, clinks, and bones. I mean, everybody's these. Oh, Belle was 14 when she developed congestive heart failure. Racky Pancholi, MLA out of Edmonton, chiming in. We said goodbye to our Sammy last year. Aww. Says the one silver lining of that first shutdown, that pandemic shutdown. We got to spend a lot of time with him in his last two months. And Racky says we miss him every single day. I think that's what I, I love. I feel reassured by it because I still like every damn day I miss Emma. Every yeah. damn day. I, I have another dog. I love Ranger like wholeheartedly, but there will always be that spot in my heart for Emma. Was, always. Was Emma, this might be, a, I should know the answer, but I don't. It Was Emma your first dog or no? Okay. My first dog, like my dog and my dog alone. Your first dog. See, Moses is my first dog ever. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I kind of have this thing with him, right? He eased into it with me. We picked Moses up. He was eight weeks old. Oh. Um, we pick him up at the, so the, the breeder, uh, don't pile on me because we didn't rescue him. Um, the breeder, <laughs> it's funny. That's a whole other conversation too, isn't it? Sure is. Sure is. Um, and uh, Carrie and I have, have had conversations like, she's like, our next dog will be a rescue. And I was like, as long as it's a brand newborn boxer, I would love to rescue it for sure. <laughs> and um, So we go to the vet and uh, we pick him up and he's like eight weeks old and he's just just this beautiful boy. And, uh, and um, <laughs> we get him, they do all the weighing and the measuring and everything. And then they say, so here he is. And I'm looking at him and I'm just looking him in the eyes and he does that thing that boxers do. And I, and then we put him into the kennel and we close the back hatch of the Jeep and we get in and I was like, really? (laughs) Like we had been together for 38 seconds 
And um, I was just, I mean, it was putrid. And I was just laughing the whole time. I was like, buddy, you and I are going to, the learning curve is going to be steep here. But, and now it's like, now he still kind of does that. This is gross, but Moses will be out. And he just trolls me. I'll be out in the backyard with the shovel and I'm like picking up, you know, I'm picking up in the yard and he'll look at me right in the eyes and squat down and go as I'm shot. I'm like, really, Moses? Really? And just, he maintains eye contact just with remo- you? He maintains eye contact the entire time. Here's a fresh one, buddy. Since you're cleaning up already, I, I might as well. I think it's more like he's just reminding me the power structure. Yeah, who's boss? He's reminding me who's boss. Yeah. Unbelievable. Uh, what a week it's been. You know how we rack up, wrap up our weeks here, and we want to wish you all just an absolutely wonderful weekend. Father's Day, I know for some of you it's going to be really painful and difficult. For some of you, Father's Day probably pisses you off a little bit, and for many of you, it's a day of immense and enormous celebration and gratitude. Whatever your situation, we'll be thinking of you. We'd love to hear from you through the weekend. Before we sign off, I want to remind you that our question of the week is up right now at ryanjesperson.com. We're asking you to chime in on the question that Premier Jason Kenney wants to ask you coming up in October. It's the chance to chime in. On that referendum question, should the commitment to equalization payments be taken out of the Constitution? We're hoping to have more than a 1,000 respondents. You can be one of them by going to ryanjesperson.com right now. It's at the top of the page. takes literally two minutes, and we'll look into those results either Monday or Tuesday morning. I think Monday. The team at Local Waste uh, for more than 25 years has been independently family-owned and operating across the province of Alberta, but they're growing and expanding, and they're also making sure that their clients, their partners, their customers, and potential customers know what the landscape looks like when it comes to waste management. There's a bit of an issue right now with another company, a new player in the market, what it appears to be kind of misleading people and, and almost allegedly tricking them. You see how careful I am when I say this? Almost allegedly tricking people into signing new deals that aren't the best for their business. Local Waste sniffed it out. They saw that that stinks, and they want to make sure that you remember. Anytime something stinks when it comes to your business, you should get in touch with Local Waste. Give Mikel a call and say, what the hell is Jesperson talking about, this shady business He'll know what we're getting at. He'll bring you up to speed. Make the decisions best for your business with Local Waste at localwaste.ca. You know, each and every Friday, the team at Local Waste also gives us an opportunity to eh, get things off our chest. We receive emails to talk at ryanjesperson.com. We put them in front of you. It's a little feature we like to call Trash Talk. Yeah, that's right. This one from Mark B. in SLC. That's beautiful Salt Lake City, Utah. He says, you know, I've lived in America for a few years now. I really miss Edmonton. This is especially true when I encounter my biggest pet peeve here. For for some unknown reason, people can't seem to turn a corner unless they're driving at the slowest speed possible. Mark says, the long skinny pedal on the right is the gas. Use it. Turn the damn corner already. There's no reason to turn corners so slowly. Mark says, I'm almost certain it's taught here because everybody slows right down to turn a corner. For God's sake, turn the bloody corner at normal speed. 
and have a nice weekend. That from Mark B in SLC. What about this one from Tyler? Tyler says thoughtfulness, integrity, honesty, empathy, and honor are all attributes we'd expect of our elected representatives. I'd say that you know a fair assessment of Alberta's premier right now, his leadership, nobody's using those descriptions. Asshattery, callousness, lies, complete disregard for the sanctity of human life. Says, you know, I mean, I don't know. Seems to me this guy doesn't give two shits about people, including people dealing with addictions. Check out the numbers, knucklehead. People are dying because of shitty policies. Says Tyler, I'm tired of this garbage. In a sense, though, this trash talk submission is a thank you rant. He says, you guys have pushed me into action. Jespo, Sarah, Sam, this platform is making me more aware that I need to get further engaged. Try to be a better human. He says, you know what? Thanks to this government's shit work, says Tyler, I'm donating money to the opposition party. And I'm going to spread word to anyone who will listen on how terrible this really is. That from Tyler. And this from Janelle, who says, I'm writing in to talk about my complete and utter disgust. You know what I'm talking about, Ryan. I know you don't want to mention the name, but you got to keep it on people's radar. The Dorchester Review. You're right, Janelle. I don't want to mention it, but I will. She says this historical commentary by this guy, Chris Champion, the same guy who wrote the K-6 social studies draft curriculum in Alberta. If it wasn't abundantly clear from the horrific curriculum, this guy appears to be a complete racist. That trash he's been tweeting out over the last couple of days about residential schools. How dare he deny the atrocities? This, these photos of Indigenous children smiling, ministers need to step up. The Premier needs to step up. This guy is blatantly denying the cultural genocide of Canada's Indigenous peoples, and I am repulsed. In Alberta, we need to work on being anti-racist, not allowing heinous racist actions, and the likes of this guy go challenged and unreprimanded. The province is watching. Our youth is watching. Our Indigenous communities are watching. Our marginalized groups are watching. The Premier needs to act. The Premier needs to have this social studies draft curriculum rewritten. This must be undertaken for the future of the province and for actual truth and reconciliation to take place. Our government needs to do the right thing. That from Janelle. We love it. We want your emails seven days a week. Talk at RyanJesperson.com is how you can get featured on Trash Talk. Have an amazing weekend. Stay safe out there and we'll talk to you Monday.